The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. Remembered to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast. You can support Forgotten TV on Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the podcast. Other ways to support are right here in the show notes, or easily seen at Forgotten.tv. This episode of Forgotten TV was brought to you by executive producers Will Welton and Doc Pinko. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. Just a note before we begin. Forgotten TV is usually G-rated, or close to it, but this episode deals with some adult themes as we look at the context of how sexual content was dealt with on 70s television. Although there's no profanity, and the discussion doesn't go far enough to warrant marking the episode as explicit, themes revolving around teenage premarital sex, birth control, and related issues are dealt with. So, as they used to say before some TV presentations, parental discretion is advised. The year was 1977. Jimmy Carter becomes 39th President of the United States. The NASA space shuttle, renamed Enterprise after a Star Trek fan letter campaign, enjoyed successful atmospheric test flights. And Elvis Presley dies at his Graceland home at age 42. The worldwide cultural phenomenon of disco gets a boost with the release of Saturday Night Fever. And nobody did it better than Roger Moore in the Bond film, The Spy Who Loved Me. At a time when a movie ticket cost $2.25, unknown filmmaker George Lucas releases a little film called Star Wars, which is added to the new list of blockbuster films, so named when viewers would line up around the block for a ticket. 
Ronco releases Mr. Microphone. Hey, good looking. We'll be back to pick you up later. RCA introduces the VHS VCR to the U.S. in August. By the end of the year, models could be had for $995. And businessman George Atkinson opens the first video rental store on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. On TV, 22 new shows debuted that fall season. ABC told viewers they were still the one and rolled out Lucan, Eight is Enough, and The Love Boat. CBS said there's something in the air and offered Logan's Run and The Amazing Spider-Man. And struggling NBC oddly started the season with no particular slogan and launches Chips, Man from Atlantis, as well as the last show to premiere that season. The topic of our podcast, break out the platform shoes and bust out the polyester bell-bottoms. In this episode of Forgotten TV, we're going back to 1977 to consider the one-season series, James at 15. James at 15, the best new series on television. Wonderfully funny, true, and touching comedy dramas at the Baltimore News. Unusually appealing, remarkably sensitive, said the New York Times. It's terrific, said the New York Post. The Los Angeles Times calls it the best new series of the season, James at 15. James at 15 had its origins out of a cold call writer Dan Wakefield received in 1976 from 20th Century Fox studio exec David Sontag asking if he wanted to write a TV script. Sontag had read Wakefield's Going All the Way and wanted to tap the writer for a TV project he had previously discussed with NBC's Paul Klein to fill out their Sunday night schedule. Soon, Wakefield found himself being flown to L.A. for a meeting with NBC with nothing more than a vague concept of a show with a 15-year-old boy named James growing up in modern-day America. Wakefield attended a meeting he would describe as being right out of the 1976 film Network, being presided over by a Faye Dunaway-type executive named Deanne Barkley, with Paul Klein and others also present. Sontag bluffed the NBC executives with nothing more than the show title, James at 15, implying they had a complete concept and story worked out. When asked what they would do if the series ran a second season, Sontag coyly revealed, We'll call it James at 16. NBC was sold. A script was commissioned for a TV movie pilot, and Wakefield went to work writing it. James at 15 aired on Labor Day, the first Monday in September, as a two-hour TV movie written by Wakefield and directed by Joseph Hardy. no walking stick he don't need no ball and chain if he ain't got no can to kick that don't mean nothing to james oh, oh james singing oh, oh james the people in the street oh the pouring of the rain is it a feeling in the heart or is it something you can't name oh, 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 oh james oh, oh James Hunter is a high school sophomore interested in photography, swimming, and the girl in the first period history class, Lacey Stevens. Lacey, however, is interested in Tony, a junior of few words, but he is a jock 
and has a car. James is subject to Walter Mitty-like fantasies that are peppered throughout the pilot movie. Fortunately, the ever-ready James Hunter was at the scene of the catastrophe, and in his usual manner of cool efficiency and quiet valor, he acted with all deliberate terrificness. Mouth-to-mouth resuscitation looks like the only answer. James, you saved my life. It was nothing, really. What about poor Tony? He never had a chance. But James is finally finding his way, settling into life as a sophomore, having a weekend job at the grocery store, and is even beginning to gain some recognition for his photography. When he overhears that his family will be uprooted from their small-town Oregon home and moving across the country to Boston. But at least the family won't be moving until summer, when the school year is over. Things take a quick turn when Lacey becomes disillusioned with the junior boy and very quickly expresses love for James. Soon they're making out in the movie theater, wishing they had a car. Then it's revealed the family will be moving at the end of the semester. Blocked at every turn by parents and little brothers, the pair plan to make a getaway up a mountain camping trail in late November to be alone. They zip together their sleeping bags, but find it is just too cold for anything to happen. James decides he'll return to Oregon to see Lacey on the first warm day of spring. Moving across the country so that Mr. Hunter can take a new position at a university in Boston, James's life is totally disrupted. Living in a townhome, still waiting on the furniture to arrive, he is subjected to some mild ribbing at school, and has difficulty adapting to city life with its confusing public transit system. When he runs away to go back to Lacey, by phone, he finds out she has moved on to another boy just as quickly as she had moved on to him. Impulsively deciding to hitchhike to Canada, he meets up with free-spirited Robin, a young adult female art student also traveling alone. They meet up with Tiger, another traveler, Along the way, James makes a half-hearted pass at Robin, but they decide to just be friends, and she gives James some good life advice, and convinces him to give his new life in Boston a chance. Returning to his now-furnished home and school, he joins the swim team and returns to his daydreams. The pilot movie aired on NBC September 5th, 1977 at 9 p.m. 8 central after a laugh-in reunion special. It was up against new CBS premieres The Fitzpatricks and Rafferty and the Rangers Twins game on ABC. Heavily promoting the laugh-in reunion as well as James in nationally run large three-column print ads in that day's TV listings James and NBC won the evening in the overnight ratings, with a 23.8 rating and a 42 share. Oddly, the Boston NBC affiliate, the city where the movie and series was set, was contractually obligated to air a day-old Patriots game and handed it off to UHF station WLVI-56 to air it instead. 16-year-old Lance Kerwin was cast as James, We'll talk more about his casting later in the the behind-the-scenes segment. 
Melissa Sue Anderson guest-starred as Lacey in the movie. She, of course, was well-known to viewers as Mary Ingalls on NBC's series Little House on the Prairie. The movie was filmed during Little House's hiatus between seasons three and four. Anderson mentions the filming in her 2010 autobiography. Because I was hired as a guest star, I wouldn't have to participate if it sold and went to series, which it did. It was the highest rated movie on television that week. I was happy for Lance, and we had a great time shooting this. We filmed fun and funny dream sequences, and from what I gather, our sleeping bag scene is quite infamous. Another interesting note, Little House's Jesse James, handsome actor Dennis Rucker, was Tiger in the movie. Kate Jackson was the other big-name guest star, well-known as Sabrina on Charlie's Angels, which would enter its second season that fall on ABC. Jackson commented on her appearance. It was a fine script, and the director was Joe Hardy, an old favorite of mine. It's not a really big role for me, but I think people will love the film. Kate Jackson was nominated for an Emmy Award for her appearance, one of two nominations for her. The other was for lead actress on Charlie's Angels. Vincent Van Patten and Mark McClure also make appearances. Writer April Smith novelized Wakefield's pilot movie screenplay, as well as the first series episode, which were published by Dell and released that year. Smith, a Boston local, was also on hand during location shooting and served as location manager, although this is not reflected in the credits. More on April Smith's experiences and contributions later in the interview segment. The movie received positive reactions from critics. Jerry Buck said it was like nothing I've seen in years. Watching the movie in 2020, I can't help but notice the massive differences between liberal parenting by modern parents of the 70s and the helicopter parenting of today. James is shown hung over on the couch, and his parents show the same concern as if he had caught a cold. Caught by his parents necking in the backseat of the family car in the garage with Lacey, there are no repercussions other than Mrs. Hunter wanting her husband to have the talk with James. A talk which consisted of, if you can't be good, be careful. Then after James had run away across the country, missing for days, the family just welcomes him back, glad he returned. These days, the FBI would likely have been involved, with Robin arrested for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. The origin of James's father's advice is interesting. The phrase, if you can't be good, be careful, seems to have first been published in 1903, when Arthur M. Binstead said it in his book, Pitcher in Paradise. Always bear in mind what the country mother said to her daughter, who was coming up to town to be apprenticed to the Bond Street Millinery. For heaven's sake, be good. But if you can't be good, be careful. However, the meaning behind the expression is a lot older than that. It may originate in the 11th century Latin proverb, Si non casta, tamen caute, which translates as, if not chastely, Nevertheless, cautiously. There were also poignant moments. At the halfway point, I noted the frank awkwardness of James saying goodbye to his best friend, Richie, with that likely being the last time they'd see each other. 
There was also a reference cut from the movie where James asks his friend to loan him that thing he carried around in his wallet. This was foreshadowing of issues that would arise later. A month ahead of the airing of the premiere movie, series production had begun on August 8th, as NBC had already announced the series at the May upfronts, and ordered 11 episodes in addition to the pilot movie, and James was one of three TV series in production at Fox Television, alongside MASH and young Daniel Boone. With production starting so late in the year, this originally was penciled in as a mid-season replacement or a reserve series in the event of an early cancellation. More on series scheduling later in Behind the Scenes. James at 15 returned on Thursday, October 27, 1977, with Episode 2, Friends, airing at 9 p.m. 8 central against Hawaii Five O and Barney Miller and Carter Country, and here we see the regular series opening for the first time, now featuring James wandering his new city of Boston, showing several recognizable landmarks. The episode again was written by Dan Wakefield and directed by Joseph Hardy, who along with Martin Manulis also served as co-executive producer of the series. With Sister Sandy meeting new friends and fitting in, things aren't going so well for James. Still new at school, he finds he is not yet eligible to participate in school activities like varsity swimming and journalism until the start of the next semester. He meets street-smart, jive-talking Sly, who sells eggplant and oregano joints on campus, crisp and proper British girl Paisley, and the studious Marlene, an amateur anthropologist with the vocabulary of a Ph.D. candidate. He gets the idea of having a party for newcomers to the school. And guess who are the three that show up? Even though the party is a disaster with everyone leaving, the four discover they have things in common, even though they are all different. They call him Sly and they don't lie. David Hubbard joins the cast as Sly. Susan Myers was Marlene, and Lisa Pelican played Paisley, who would return in only one additional episode. This was her eighth acting credit. Her feature film debut was 1977's Julia, and she has worked fairly regularly since in theater, film, and TV. The following week, Episode 3, The Girl with the Bad Rep, aired, written by Ronald Rubin, who was also story editor on the series and directed by Joseph Hardy. Now photographer on the school newspaper and covering the Miss 15 pageant, James falls for Pam, a girl with a reputation, supposedly having been with eight boys already. Well, that's according to the graffiti on the wall in the sub shop alley. Sly and Marlene warn James against getting involved with her, but this only encourages him thinking he's going to be able to score with her, and invites her over under the pretense of a photography session. Even though he gets shot down, he adds his name to the list on the wall. But he finds that reputations aren't always deserved, and develops a real friendship with her. Pam was played by Terry Nunn, who delivered a really good performance. An actress in the 70s, this was her second role, 
She auditioned for the role of Princess Leia on Star Wars, a movie attended by the characters in the episode. It was said that Harrison Ford didn't like her for the role. She was offered the role of Lucy Ewing on the soap opera Dallas the following year, which she turned down because she would have to sign a seven-year contract. And she wanted to pursue music as well, and that would have prevented her from doing so. The role went to Charlene Tilton. Terry did show up on Barnaby Jones, Time Express, Lou Grant, as well as the film Thank God It's Friday. However, she gave up acting for music, and you may know her as the lead vocalist of 80s new wave band Berlin. Their top hit, Take My Breath Away, was featured in the 1986 film Top Gun. In the episode, she performs the song, Do You Know Where You're Going To, covered by many artists over the years, but most notably by Diana Ross for the 1975 film Mahogany. The recurring role of Dean Llewellyn is established, played by actor Marvin Katzoff, who would appear in eight of the episodes. Also, the location of Ernie's sub shop after school hangout is established here with the kids dancing to generic, jazzy-style background music. The following week, Episode 4, Kathy's in the Shower, aired, directed by Joseph Hardy and written by Dan Wakefield. James finds out Sister Kathy is in love with, and living with, her college professor Judd, and struggles with processing this information. When the parents find out, the 30-year-old professor's sexuality even comes into question because he's never been married by this late age, something 12-year-old Sandy bluntly points out. This leads to awkward, emotionally charged, euphemistic conversations with James and his mother about premarital sex and choices in life. When they come to visit, more awkwardness takes place over the sleeping arrangements. Art Hindle was Judd. He's been a working actor from 1971 to today, having roles on Dallas, Porky's, and Porky's 2, as well as the short-lived Behringer's on NBC in 1985. Skipping ahead two weeks, Episode 5, Higher Ground, airing an hour early at 8 p.m. 7 Central. On James at 15, a pretty girl convinces James to join her friend's religious group. I have something I'd like to give you. It's awfully intimate. Then he learns about the fringe benefits. The writers were Joyce Keener and Ronald Rubin. Keener was a story editor and writer on Knott's Landing. Directed by James Sheldon, whose work is a laundry list from the dawn of television to 1986. Unfortunately, this was one I couldn't find a recording of, and one I really wanted to see. So I only have online synopses to relate here, as well as that promo we just heard. James and Marlene conduct studies that show people are largely unhappy in modern times. James joins a meditation cult, the Rainbow Fellowship, and becomes interested in a young woman there. He even wears his cult robe to school, but when she's only interested in being friends, he loses interest, saying, I just can't cut this. I've tried the meditation, the bean curds, the kelp, and hardest of all, the pure thoughts. Actresses Fran Ryan and Michelle Marsh make appearances. 
This episode begins the routine of popular songs of the era performed by the original artists appearing on episodes, usually heard as diegetic music, where we assume the characters are also hearing the same music. This is something we'll discuss extensively later in Behind the Scenes. And this starts our James at 15 Music Countdown. From their hit album Rumors, we heard Don't Stop peaking at number three on the Billboard chart and You Make Loving Fun by Fleetwood Mac. And from his album Summertime Dream, Gordon Lightfoot with I'm Not Supposed to Care. And that was the James at 15 hit list for November 24th, 1977. After three weeks of TV specials, Episode 6, The Apple Tree, The Singing, and The Gold aired December 15, 1977. Written by Ronald Rubin, directed by Peter Levin, known for directing Lou Grant, Midnight Caller, and Judging Amy. James begins dating Paisley from Episode 2. Old friend from Oregon, Bob, comes to visit, and it's fun and games, until it's revealed he came to Boston to be treated for acute myeloid leukemia. Bob and Paisley fall for each other, but Bob returns to Oregon after treatment and tells everyone goodbye. Later, one day after school, James is told Bob died from his illness and James must learn to deal with grief for the first time. Bob left a letter for everyone detailing his feelings about being in Boston, his love for Paisley, and how he no longer feels alone or afraid about his illness. And this is read to Paisley, Marlene, and Sly. Six episodes in, and the series hits its stride in one of the most memorable tearjerker episodes. Writer Ronald Rubin shows he understood the show and its characters. Perry Lang was Bob. He had a role in the short-lived Stephen Bochco series Bay City Blues from 1983 and was also a director known for Dawson's Creek, Alias, and Everwood. Bob is a previously unseen character, sort of. He echoes and was obviously inspired by the character of Richie from the pilot movie played by Mark McClure. Bob and James even hurled the exact same friendly insults at each other that Richie and James shared. So why didn't Mark return to reprise his role of Richie? He was busy filming Superman the movie, playing the iconic role of Jimmy Olsen. The episode title referred to the ancient Greek tragedy Hippolytus, by Euripides from the 5th century BCE, specifically the Chorus. To the strand of the daughters of the sunset, the apple tree, the singing, and the gold, where the mariner must stay him from his onset, and the red wave is tranquil as of old. Yea, beyond that pillar of the end, that atlas guarded, would I wend where a voice of living waters never ceaseth, in God's quiet garden by the sea. And earth, the ancient life-giver, increaseth, joy among the meadows like a tree. Among other themes, the play deals with death 
and loss, and has inspired other writers, such as Jean Nordhaus, in her poem, which shares the title of this episode. And continuing our James at 15 music countdown. At number four on Billboard Hot 100, that was Foreigner with their hit single, It Feels Like the First Time. And we heard bookends by Simon and Garfunkel and the Steve Miller Band with Jungle Love. And that was our James at 15 countdown for December 15th, 1977. Episode 7, Fast and Loose. Written by Joyce Eliason and Dan Wakefield. Eliason was one of the writers for Love American Style and is probably best known for writing TV miniseries like Titanic and The Last Dawn. She's also a published author. Directed by Richard Crenna, yes, primarily known as an actor, he has 17 directing credits for different TV series and movies, which include 22 episodes of The Real McCoys and The Andy Griffith Show. New boy Cornell from a wealthy family shows up at school, and James shows him around. His motto is Carpe Diem, seize the day, and his enthusiasm infects James when he gets to drive a Porsche, use Cornell's movie camera, wear his custom-made boots, watches rented films on 16mm in Cornell's living room, and gets taken on an impromptu trip to California and a tour of the 20th Century Fox backlot without parental permission. Cornell is nice enough, but superficial. His family's wealth has made him removed from the concerns and consequences regular people have. James becomes disillusioned with Cornell's live-for-the-moment lifestyle when he gets pinched walking out of a department store in L.A. without paying for an expensive jacket and has to call his father from jail. Daniel Tam was Cornell. He only acted in a few things after this, including The Practice and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I found this episode very interesting due to a detail shown. Cornell's family used a film rental service to watch a Hollywood movie at home. Indeed, services such as Modern Sound Pictures and Films Incorporated were in the business of non-theatrical film rental, enabling schools, libraries, institutions, or the very well-heeled consumer the ability to rent a 16mm film print of Hollywood movies via catalog. You could rent Hollywood classics like John Wayne's Hattari for $37.50, or more recent fare such as Count Yorga Vampire for $52.50 per day. Remember, the VCR was a brand new device, and the concept of video rental of pre-recorded Hollywood content had yet to take hold. In fact, as mentioned in the intro, the very month this episode aired, the very first video rental store opened in Los Angeles, for which owner George Atkinson would run a tiny one-inch ad on the TV listings page of the LA Times. As you might imagine, 16mm film print rental services began a precipitous decline in the 1980s, but modern sound pictures actually operated until at least 1990. And it's time to revisit our James at 15 music countdown. (music) 
peaking at number six on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. That was Cold as Ice, performed by Foreigner. And we heard Sean Cassidy's hit single, That's Rock and Roll, number three on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. And that was a look at our James at 15 music playlist, December 22nd, 1977. Episode 8, Mrs. Carson. James dreams of fulfilling his fantasies with a beautiful older woman cause hardships. Do you want people calling her a cradle robber, a dirty old woman? It's not fair. Chips, then James at 15, Thursday starting at 8, 7 Central and Mountain. Written by Nancy Sackett, she would write two episodes and is known primarily for creating the 1984 series Glitter and directed by Ernest Lasso, who was also producer of the first half of the season. Frustrated with one girl after another putting him in the friend zone, James vents these feelings to 24-year-old student teacher Mrs. Carson. Her husband has left her pregnant and alone, and the two become friends becoming too familiar with each other. James becomes infatuated with her, but of course, it's a relationship that cannot be. James moans to older sister Kathy, She's the only woman I'll ever love. I'm burned out at 15. There's always next week, James. Mrs. Carson was played by Joanne Nail, a minor actress in the 70s and 80s, guesting on series like The Rockford Files, Hawaii Five-O, and Cagney and Lacey. And even though she would be in the opening credits for the entire first half of the season, this was the final appearance of Deirdre Berthrong as James's sister, Kathy. And let's take a look at our James at 15 music countdown. From his hit 1976 album, Summertime Dream, we heard Race Among the Ruins and Summertime Dream by Gordon Lightfoot. We heard James Taylor with There We Are and the Doobie Brothers with their version of Little Darling, I Need You. And that was our James at 15 countdown for December 29th, 1977. C77, the year of the big events, the super specials. And the events will be even bigger in 78. Hey, some nights are gonna be special. Some nights are gonna be rare. Taking us into 1978, Episode 9, Unrequited Love, twice, written by Leonard Cantor. A playwright, he had been a writer on The Untouchables, The Fugitive, and The FBI, among other shows. Directed by Ernest Pentoff, known for Kojak, Hawaii Five-0, Knott's Landing, and other shows. Our episode opens with James swearing off girls to divert his attentions to sports and cooking. This lasts about five minutes as blonde college student Janice drops by the house looking for his dad. Of course, Janice is too old for James and also isn't interested. However, Sandy's 11-year-old friend Susan is interested, much to his annoyance. And Janice is interested in Mr. Hunter, something obvious to both James and Sandy. 
When things are resolved, James has a surprisingly sophisticated conversation about love with Susan. Meanwhile, Sister Sandy enters the adult world of social involvement when she pickets a massage parlor in the neighborhood. Sandy's picket signs were hilarious. Rub out porn, hex public sex, and massage your mind. Also, Sandy's 11-year-old friends were quite precocious, asking Susan if James makes out and tells him, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Tara Talboy played young Susan. She had provided voices for the Saturday morning cartoon, Clue Club, and appeared in several ABC after-school and weekend specials. And once again, it's time for a look at our James at 15 music countdown. From his latest album, JT, peaking at number four on the Billboard chart, that was James Taylor with Handyman. We heard Sean Cassidy's number seven song, Hey Deanie. Pablo Cruz asked, What You Gonna Do? And we heard Sean Cassidy's number one hit, Da Do Run Run. And that was a look at our James at 15 music playlist for January 5th, 1978. Episode 10, Actions Speak Louder. I got enough trouble with normal kids. Don't be prejudiced against him just because he's deaf. James and his friends help a handicapped student overcome a coach's bigotry. A way must be found to bring pressure to bear on him. We got to insight the masses. That is it. Story by Paul Hewson, he went on to create the Tim Matheson, Catherine Hicks series, Tucker's Witch, and developed Dynasty spinoff, The Colbys, for ABC. Teleplay by Ronald Rubin, directed by Joseph Hardy. James has learned sign language and hangs out with new friend Scott, a deaf student that has previously only attended a school for the deaf. James facilitates Scott's transfer to Bunker Hill High and his mainstreaming. This includes fighting for his rights to join the soccer team, as well as dating. But he may have to face the fact that things may be too difficult for Scott to adapt to the hearing world. It's yet another touching Ronald Rubin episode. In an odd meta moment, James and the gang watches a Paul Simon TV special which is specifically referred to. This NBC special had preempted James at 15 on December 8th, six weeks prior to this episode. Scott was played by Kevin Van Weeringen, who really is deaf. He didn't act very much, and his only other credit was the 1981 Disney film Amy with Jenny Augutter. One authority on deaf culture called his casting on James the biggest breakthrough yet in the eventual hiring of deaf actors for movies and television. And Lance really learned some sign language for this episode. I reached out to Kevin, and he said he had good memories of being on the show and that Lance was a wonderful actor to work with. Once again, let's take a look at our James at 15 music countdown. From the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, that was the Bee Gees with their number one hit, Jive Talkin'. We also heard the Bee Gees' top ten hit, Nights on Broadway. The Steve Miller Band took us to Swingtown 
Paul Simon sang about me and Julio down by the schoolyard. And Andy Gibbs' number one hit, I Just Want to Be Your Everything. That rounds out our James at 15 playlist for January 19th, 1978. Episode 11, Star-Crossed Lovers. Written by Bernie Kahn and directed by Peter Levin. James encounters an adult street musician named Dusty, which the trio starts hanging out with. The studious Marlene falls for him and enlists James and Sly to help her get him. She also enlists James to cover for her with her dad and brother, to the point where James poses as her boyfriend. When Dusty has an opportunity out on the West Coast, Marlene is intent to run off with him, even buying the bus tickets. But when she realizes he likes her enough to be right for tonight, but is not about to start an actual relationship with her, she leaves. When James and Sly find out what he's going to do with the other bus ticket, they step in. Here, the normally level-headed Marlene shows she isn't immune to love in this well-written episode from Bernie Kahn. Although he's primarily known for his work in TV comedies and animated shows, he occasionally drifted into drama with Honey West, Room 222, and James at 15. Incredibly, the inappropriateness of a 15-year-old girl dating an adult man isn't really addressed, and when they have a make-out scene, clear that sex was about to happen, I almost fell out of my chair. However, this was a very well-done episode. The realism of Marlene's heartbreak, as well as what her friends do for her, is sold to the viewer. The links that Sly and James go to in order to protect her feelings were impressive and surprised me. This turned out to be one of the top episodes of the series. Wolfman Jack makes an appearance in one of James's daydreams, which they still sometimes squeeze in, and Lance got to play his flute again in this episode. Guest character Dusty was played by Randy Richards, who wrote and performed nearly all the songs heard in this episode, which were from his upcoming self-titled album released the following year. He is a better singer than the poor quality audio from the home video recordings reveal. Prior to James at 15, he had put up his own money and released an album under his own label, Little Angel Records. He says the gamble paid off. I had high hopes, but I was amazed at the way it took off for me. After three months, it was being played on 450 radio stations across the country. I shipped 20,000 singles and 5,000 albums, and it got to the point where I thought I'd better get some help. Talent manager Shep Gordon provided that help, who managed Blondie and Alice Cooper. He had heard him on the radio and decided he wanted to manage him. Richard signed with A&M Records, and Gordon got him booked on James at 15, and Randy reveals what he did to prepare for the role. Two days before we began shooting, I took my guitar out on the street and tried to soak up the experiences to use during the filming. My acting has always been on the introspective side. If I can get that side of a character down, I know I can make it real. I was able to speak to Randy, and he shared some background tidbits on the filming of this episode. During breaks in filming, he and Lance would go and sneak peeks at the MASH production, also filming on the Fox lot. 
quietly hiding just on the other side of the tent canvas. Susan Myers, who played Marlene, was very enthusiastic when it came to the kissing scenes, to the point where additional takes were needed to tone things down for TV. Randy believes he may have been one of the first actors to depict marijuana smoking on television in this episode. Following his appearance on James, he auditioned for the role of Luke Duke on The Dukes of Hazard, losing the role to Tom Woolpat. Richards was born Randy Matos from Birmingham, Alabama, where at age 12 he had recorded his first single and later had a teenage band. His song, There's Always a Goodbye, featured in this episode, was covered by both Frankie Valli and Anne Murray. In the wake of the Haiti earthquake of 2010, he traveled to Haiti as part of MRE USA to deliver meals ready to eat directly to Haitian orphans still in need, in spite of larger relief efforts. A promotional video for the effort was released, featuring Richards covering the song, You'll Be In My Heart. The songwriter has written over 100 songs that have been recorded by himself and various artists. Now going by Randall Lee Richards and billing himself as a country singer, he has been inducted into the Country Music Association. His newest single, You're My Everything, was released in April 2020, and he is busy producing even more music that will be coming soon. Links to his content and website can be found in the show notes. And that leads into our James at 15 music playlist. Topping out at number two on the easy listening chart, On and On with Stephen Bishop. And in this episode, we heard over half of Randy Richards' self-titled 1978 album, including Silver Bullets, Money Don't Make You Nice, Any Way That You Want Me, There's Always a Goodbye, Ride, and Inside of Me. And that was our Randy Richards one-man showcase for January 26, 1978. Episode 12, The Gift Airing February 9, 1978 Written by Ronald Rubin and directed by Mark Daniels Known for Star Trek, Hogan's Heroes, and Kung Fu Here, the title of the show changes to James at 16 And a new theme song begins the show James got a question inside, got a whole world of mine there's a lot to discover. James got two bridges to build. Your dreams to fulfill. It's all out waiting for you to find. And your friends, they'll all stand behind you. And if you forget, you know they'll remind you. James, like a river that flows, there's so much to know. James and Sly are looking forward to Swedish foreign exchange student Christina arriving at Bunker Hill. Even though James quickly offends her, 
this is quickly glossed over, and in less than a week, James and Christina are in love. James is also turning 16 and hopes to get a car as a gift from Uncle Chester. But his uncle's gift turns out to be setting him up with a prostitute in a hotel room. But James, in love with Christina, declines the gift. When the family goes on a ski trip for the weekend, James and Christina have the house to themselves. Listening to Billy Joel, nature takes its course. In a few days, Christina worries she might become pregnant, and James spends the network-mandated four minutes of the episode worrying about this. Soon their whirlwind three-week romance comes to an end as her exchange ends, but James will forever remember her. Well, it's the big episode. With a new theme song and title comes a new producer, Ronald Rubin. Rubin had already written four episodes prior to this one, including one of the best. With this episode, he is promoted to producer, as producer Ernest Lasso leaves the show, along with executive producers Martin Manulis and Joseph Hardy, and creator and story consultant Dan Wakefield. There was obviously a huge shakeup and lots to talk about behind the scenes on this one, which we'll cover in the next segment. Kirsten Baker played Christina. Producers evidently were going for realism. While not from Sweden, the actress was born in neighboring Scandinavian country, Norway. This was her acting debut. Following this, she was in the teenage films Teen Lust, California Dreaming, Gas Pump Girls, Midnight Madness, and Friday the 13th, Part 2. She was also a print model for Canon Pictures. Trisha Noble played the so-called gift in the hotel room. She used to be on The Dick Emery Show in the 60s and was later seen as a guest actor on multiple series of the era, Night Gallery, The Rockford Files, Buck Rogers, The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, and so on. Is it true what they say about Swedish girls? While what they say is never explicitly stated, it is implied it has something to do with sexual prowess. This may be the earliest example of the sexy foreign exchange student trope in entertainment, something used on a slew of TV shows like Boy Meets World and That 70s Show, and later parodied in films like Better Off Dead, American Pie, and Not Another Teen Movie. Although this is not credited, nor have I seen this referenced anywhere, you may recognize a sampling of the flute solo from the theme to Room 222, used in a couple of scenes. That theme was composed by the late, great Jerry Goldsmith, who has 256 composing credits to his name. And that brings us back to our continuing James at 15 Music Countdown. It's the new theme to the series, It's All Up To You, written and performed by Dan Seals and John Ford Coley. From his album, The Stranger, we heard Billy Joel's top hit, Just The Way You Are. Paul Simon was slip sliding away. And we heard Strawberry Letter 23 by the Brothers Johnson. And that was a look at our James at 15 music playlist for February 9th, 1978. Episode 13, The Blowout, 
Written by Wally Dalton and Shelley Zellman. Story by Mara Lydex. Wally Dalton is primarily an actor, but was known to team with Shelley Zellman and write for TV shows like Barney Miller and It's a Living. This is the first of three episodes penned by the writing team. Mara Lydex was a staff writer on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Directed by Larry Elikin, known for directing numerous ABC after-school and weekend specials. James Marlene and Sly are on the school dance committee, and it wouldn't be a James at 16 episode if he wasn't crushing on another new blonde girl, Millie. The issue with her is that she is taller than he is, which he reveals to Sly and Marlene at the sub shop, while friends all too enthusiastically dance to Paul Simon's short people. With the spring blowout dance around the corner and everybody out looking for a date, James considers platform shoes, which figure into one of his fantasies, where he envisions himself as a tall Rhett Butler. He even ridiculously enlists Sly's help rigging up some type of stretch rack. Meanwhile, another girl is crushing on him, and she's shorter than him. So what is James going to do when Millie says no to going to the dance with him? Sly has an honest rap session with James, and the band Marlene booked for the dance was none other than England Dan and John Ford Coley, who were called out in dialogue and their music is heard at length. Catherine Moffat was Millie, credited as Kitty Ruth in the credits. She had been on The Hardy Boys, BJ and the Bear, Quincy, Enos, Chips, and was Edna Grinbody on the new WKRP in Cincinnati, and appeared on both Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. First, a production note. I have to note the out-of-place dancing, again repeatedly done by the characters that is inappropriate for the type of music being played. It is obvious music was added in post-production and not heard by the actors during filming. This was likely nearly always the case, but made more noticeable here because people are dancing to every song heard in this episode. This began as a by-the-numbers episode with James crushing over yet another new girl, but the honest dialogue of friendship between Sly and James, the period music, the antics of nerdy Dean Llewellyn, and the costumes at the dance filmed through a haze filter seemed to merge James's daydreams with real life. I really liked this one. Thumbs up. Once again, it's time to revisit our James at 15 music countdown. We heard Short People, written and performed by Randy Newman. Paul Simon told us 50 ways to leave your lover. Mother of Pearl was performed by Waku. England Dan and John Ford Coley sang their top hit, I'd Really Love to See You Tonight, as well as Gone Too Far. And that was our James at 15 music countdown for February 16th, 1978. Episode 14, Listless Fever. Written by Bud Freeman and directed by Peter Levin. Freeman was known for pinning episodes of Love American Style, Room 222, and Hawaii 5 In a funk and feeling run down, James fears he may have contracted VD from Swedish exchange student Christine, 
especially after teacher Mr. Ashmore is intent on repeatedly showing VD hygiene films. He faces the embarrassment of going to the VD clinic for testing and has to wait a week for the results. Meanwhile, Sly has his eye on a girl, but she likes another boy. So tall, he looks like he should be playing on the NBA. Yes, not only did NBC mandate James and Christina worry about pregnancy in episode 12, The Gift, they also required an episode where he regrets his sexual dalliance and needs to worry about having what we used to call a venereal disease. If only the network had allowed him to be responsible, he wouldn't have to worry about this. This episode almost certainly was intended to air the week following The Gift, but I'm betting NBC shuffled things around so we wouldn't have two episodes back-to-back concerning James's sexual experience. Ah, today's reckless youth, with your fast roadsters and your rumble seats. I have to say the classroom films being played took me back to the 1950s hygiene films being shown in junior high. And James goes through one of those milestones in life, being tested for what was then called VD, or more euphemistically, a social disease. Richard Sanders was Mr. Ashmore. Any watcher of WKRP recognizes him as Les Nessman, winner of the Buckeye Newshawk and coveted Silver Sow Awards. And, once again, it's time to visit our James at 15 Music Countdown. We heard the number one hit, Baby Come Back by Player. From their 1977 album, Living on the Fault Line, that was the Doobie Brothers, with nothing but a heartache. And Firefall wants us to just remember I love you. And that was our James at 15 music playlist for February 23rd, 1978. This portion of James at 15 is brought to you by Crest. Test after test proves how well Crest fights cavities. 25 years of proof behind it, a future of good checkups with it. In the short time it takes this match to go out, six more Americans will be afflicted with venereal disease. Don't get burned. Get the facts. Send a stamp return envelope to VD. Box 100, Palo Alto, California, 94302. Hey, this Christmas party's getting a little too quiet. I think it's time we liven it up with my favorite Christmas gift, Mr. Microphone. Hey, what's that? Well, you set the dial on your FM radio and... Testing, testing, testing. These kids are having a fabulous time with Mr. Microphone, the cordless microphone that actually puts your voice on the radio. There are no attaching wires, so you're free to move around. Broadcast over any FM car radio. Hey, good looking. We'll be back to pick you up later. You can broadcast in mono or with two more radios in stereo. Professional entertainers use Mr. Microphone for rehearsing. And you can, too. It's practical and great fun for the whole family. And for only $12.88, they really make great Christmas gifts. The perfect Christmas gift at Walgreens, Woolworth, Woolco, Osco, Venture, Weebolts, Montgomery Ward. Episode 15, Champions. 
written by the writing team of Wally Dalton and Shelley Zellman, and directed by Ralph Sineski. James, Sly, and other Bunker Hill students fail to make it onto the school varsity basketball team and head to the sub shop. They decide to start up their own intramural team and call it the Magnificent Seven. And soon, it's shirts against skins at practice. James has his eye on yet another new girl, Jennifer. But when the guys reject Jennifer when she wants to join their team, she forms her own and wants James to coach. Vic Tabak was Coach Murphy. He was already playing Mel Sharples on the CBS series Alice, the role he is best known for, and which he played until 1985. Michelle Tobin was Jennifer. She was on The Fitzpatricks, a family drama airing over at CBS during the same season. She had been one of the Beardsley children on Yours, Mine, and Ours in 1968. She was also in the short-lived California Fever in 1979. She was most recently seen on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Ralph Sineski told me he has no memory of directing this episode. That may not be that unusual. The man is 96, and this was one week out of his career over 40 years ago. He directed the original Twilight Zone, Dr. Kildare, and some great episodes of Star Trek. You should check out his website, Ralph's Cinema Trek, at Sineski.com. We get a great view of a pre-video game pinball arcade circa 1978. And not being a sports guy, I had to look this up. A varsity team is the principal team representing a college, high school, or middle school. An intramural team is a recreational team organized within a school or set geographic area that provides some of the same structure as the official teams, but don't represent the school officially in competitions. And once again, it's time to take a look at our James at 15 Music Countdown. Kansas took us to the point of no return. We heard Santana with their rendition of She's Not There. The Bee Gees told us you should be dancing. And of course, none other than Sweet Georgia Brown accompanied this episode, performed by Brother Bones and His Shadows. And that was a look at our James at 15 Music Countdown, March 2nd, 1978. Episode 16. An Hour Before Midnight Written by Ronald Rubin and Nancy Sackett Directed by Peter Levin Working on the school paper, James, as photographer, has befriended Karen, a reporter. Interested in her, he asks her out on a date, but she's late because she was attending an AA meeting. Karen is an alcoholic, and when she attends a party at James's invitation, this is revealed to him. Later, when she blows an important interview, James is able to save it, and he tries to help her in other ways. He's given some real advice by Sly and especially Marlene, who it turns out knows a thing or two about alcoholism. Ernest Lasso, Dan Wakefield, Martin Manulis, and Joseph Hardy are all credited on this one, meaning it was part of the initial 12-episode order shot in the first half of the season, when they were all still working on the show. Karen was played by none other than Rosanna Arquette very early in her career, 
She had only been in a couple of TV movies, Having Babies 2 and The Dark Secret of Harvest Home. Rosanna was on several TV shows, Eight is Enough, Here's Boomer, and a role on the short-lived Shirley with Shirley Jones. Her big year was 1985, when she scored roles on Silverado and Desperately Seeking Susan. Harold Happy Hairston made a cameo appearance. He was a forward for the Cincinnati Royals, the Detroit Pistons, and the Los Angeles Lakers. And it's time for a look at our James at 15 music countdown. LTD performed Back in Love Again. And we heard music by Brick, Dusick, and Living from the Mind. And that was our brief look at the James at 15 music countdown for March 9th, 1978. Following this episode, NBC announces the cancellation of seven programs, including Police Woman, The Bionic Woman, Grizzly Adams, Chico and the Man, CPO Sharky, Whatever Happened to the Class of 65, and James at 15. Although not officially announced until mid-May, they must have let it slip. Buck Bigger's TV column mentioned the cancellation as early as the beginning of April. The show was pulled from the schedule for seven weeks and returned with Episode 17, Knocking Heads, June 1st, 1978. Written by Dusty Kay and Bill Nuss. The writing team had worked together on Good Times and Eight is Enough. Nuss went on to be a producer and was showrunner on Booker, 21 Jump Street, Renegade, and Pacific Blue. Directed by Peter Levin. You're turning to the sports scene. It's that time of year when the pigskin is near. Our football team, under the able tutelage of Coach Ira Goff, is practicing hard these days. So let's get down and support our boys by getting down to the double-A right away and buying those season tickets. Remember, school spirit isn't something you drink. So how about making a real show of school spirit and filling those bleachers? Oh, you cats and chicks. Hey, hey. And now, for some of the sounds you love most, our own Bunker Hill Jive Masters, Jackson, and the Back Bay Boogie Band. Well, while Sly has clearly arrived as a school radio DJ, James writes an article for the school paper, questioning the strategy of Bunker Hill's football coach. Initially, the editor declines to print it, but relents when James threatens to quit over it. He runs into trouble, though, when Coach Goff becomes his history teacher and gives him the business. In an effort for the coach to let up on him, James joins the football team himself and debates the ethics of using information he and Sly dug up on the coach. Charles Hallahan was Coach Goth in an early role. You might remember him best as Captain Devane on Hunter. He guest starred on numerous TV shows from the 70s to the 90s and was a voice actor on the 90s series Gargoyles. Once again, it's time for a look at our James at 15 Music Countdown. From his 1977 album, Songs in the Key of Life, we heard Stevie Wonder with the number one hit, Sir Duke. 
and Berkshire was performed by Waku. And that was a look at our James at 15 music countdown for June 1st, 1978. Episode 18, Rebel Without a Car. Written by Stephen Trams, who would later make a name for himself as an assistant director for 80s shows Magnum P.I., Scarecrow and Mrs. King, and Spencer for Hire. This is his only writing credit. And directed by Larry Ellican. Meeting yet another new blonde, James again realizes not having a car is putting a cramp in dating possibilities. And he and Sly recruit nerdy Dean Llewellyn to chauffeur them on a double date in his van in order to, as Dean puts it, horn dog it in the back. When the girls make fun of Dean, they all get kicked out onto the side of the road and they embarrassingly have to be picked up by Mr. Hunter. James badgers his dad to finish teaching him how to drive in the family Ford LTD. When this doesn't work out, he turns to Sly's Uncle Raph, who is clearly in the business of managing ladies of the evening. James gets into trouble later when he takes the family LTD out on a date without permission and before he gets his license. Antonio Fargus, yes, Huggy Bear from Starsky and Hutch, was the original choice to play Sly's Uncle Raph. When he was unavailable at the last minute, he was replaced by Dick Anthony Williams. Thanks to Marvin Katzoff for that little tidbit. Dick Anthony Williams appeared in The Mac, Bustin' Loose, Mo Better Blues, and The Players Club. Christine DeBell was James's interest of the week, Cheryl, known for her appearances on Meatballs and the amazing Samurai Cop 2, Deadly Vengeance. Character actor Ed Peck appeared in this one as a sketchy driving instructor. Later in his career, he often played a police officer on shows like Barney Miller, Benson, and Happy Days. And it's time to check out our James at 15 music countdown. Our first song was Waku with their single, Fabulous Dancer. We again heard Duzik, performed by Brick, and Maze, featuring Frankie Beverly, were working together. And that was a look at our James at 15 music countdown for June 8th, 1978. Episode 19, Hunter Country, written by April Smith and directed by Stan Lathan. The accomplished producer-director has an extensive credit list dating back to 1968 and includes Sanford and Son, Eight is Enough, and Hill Street Blues. And he was a producer and director on the 90s series Rock with Charles S. Dutton. James, Marlene, and Sly are becoming increasingly disappointed with the way Bunker Hill is being run and James decides to run for student body president against varsity jock Jeff. Classmate Alicia acts as his PR manager, and soon he becomes quite the budding politician. However, when some of James's ideas rubs Marlene the wrong way, and she decides that she will run against him, how far will he go to win? Deborah Winger appeared as Alicia in a fairly early role, she had appeared twice on Wonder Woman as Diana's younger sister, Drusilla. 
She became known when she won the role of Sissy in Urban Cowboy with John Travolta in 1980, and her roles in An Officer and a Gentleman and Terms of Endearment in the early 80s established her as a leading dramatic actress. And Eric Stoltz started his acting career on this episode with a quick walk-on role. He probably came on most people's radar as one of the shirtless stoners in 1982's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. No shirt, no shoes, no dives. He later appeared in The Wildlife, Mask, and was famously the original choice for Marty McFly on Back to the Future. Most recently, he can be seen on Madam Secretary. The writer of this episode, April Smith, was great friends with series creator Dan Wakefield, and we discuss this episode further in the interview segment. Again, it's time to take a look at our James at 15 music countdown. From his 1977 album, Thunder in My Heart, Leo Sayer said, It's over. And peaking at number five on the U.S. charts, Brick House by the Commodores. And that was our James at 15 music countdown for June 15, 1978. Episode 20, Ducks. Written by Martin Zweibach. He was an award-winning writer responsible for episodes of The Rifleman, Run for Your Life, Kung Fu, and The Paper Chase, and directed by Peter Levin in his sixth and final episode. James befriends an elderly woman, Miss Jordan, who cares for the ducks in the pond at the local park. When a freeway expansion threatens to destroy the park, James, Sly, and Marlene and Dean Llewellyn's van help Miss Jordan locate the ducks to a new habitat instead of having them captured and turned into zoo animal feed. While initially supportive, how will the families react when the trio get Miss Jordan arrested and James and Sly bring home boxes of ducks? Character actress Irene Tedrow was Miss Jordan. She was Aunt May on CBS's The Amazing Spider-Man, well, one of them, but her career goes back to 1940. She was an extra in The Ten Commandments and appeared twice on The Twilight Zone in episodes Walking Distance and The Lateness of the Hour. She also showed up in 1980's Midnight Madness, also starring James at 15 recurring cast member Marvin Katzoff, who oddly wasn't seen in this episode, even though his van was. Irene Tidrow received an Emmy Award nomination for her appearance in this episode. She worked up to 1989 and died in 1995 at age 87. African-Canadian actor Percy Rodriguez also appeared as the judge. We saw him as Primus Isaac Kimbridge on Genesis 2, and he is known for his roles on Star Trek, Peyton Place, Mission Impossible, and Benson, among many others. Here we have a rare episode that takes place completely away from school, and I was grateful for the obvious day-for-night shots on this one, making the action actually visible here on the 35-year-old recording. In Rebel Without a Car, some of the scenes actually seemed to be shot at night, and they were very difficult to make out. 
And it was nice to see Kim Richards have scenes again. The last several episodes were very school-centric, not leaving much screen time for family members. And we return to our James at 15 music countdown, as short as it is. Peaking at number six on the Billboard Hot 100, only two months prior to this episode, we heard Kansas with Dust in the Wind from their 1977 album, Point of No Return. And that was our James at 15 playlist for June 22, 1978. Episode 21, Queen of the Silver Dollar. Written by Wally Dalton and Shelley Zellman, and directed by George Tyne, a stage and film actor and television director of numerous TV sitcoms of the 1970s, he closed out his career with 10 episodes of The Love Boat and one Harper Valley PTA. The Bunker Hill swim team is away to a regional meet. The teen male energy is high as they share motel rooms, and there is rivalry with the opposing team at a cafe, where James also meets a girl named Emmy. His teammates bet him $2 that he can't get her to come back to his motel room and spend the night. But what is just a bet to James may mean much more to Emmy. And days later, when she shows up unexpectedly at the sub shop back home, he has to deal with the feelings he stirred up in her. We have yet another new coach, Coach Federson in this one, played by character actor M. Emmett Walsh, who you've seen in everything from The Sandy Duncan Show to The Jerk to Silkwood, Fletch, and Critters. He also played Barry Allen's father on the 1990 series The Flash. And viewers may notice Steve Tracy as a swim team member from a rival school. This was his first TV appearance. Two years later, he would be cast in the recurring role of Nellie's husband, Percival Dalton, on Little House on the Prairie, for which he is best known. Sadly, he died in 1986 at age 34. A couple of production notes on this one. Lance's hair has grown progressively over the series, but here he sports the longest hair yet seen, in a hairstyle that seems modeled after Sean Cassidy. The Sleepright Motel, seen in the episode, is a building at 20th Century Fox Studios in Century City, and has been featured in numerous television shows, including the Charlie's Angels Season 4 episode, Harrigan's Angels. The character of Marlene is completely absent from this one, and on this final episode, Lance's stepfather, Ernie Phillips, made it on screen as Man in Sub Shop. By way of criticism, one has to wonder if James has really learned anything over the past year. In episode 3, he got grabby with Pam, thinking she would be an easy score, without consideration of her feelings, then added his name to the list in the alley. Here to win a simple bet, he leads Emmy on, letting her think he was interested in her and letting the guys think he was having a sexual conquest in the adjoining room. He seems contrite at the end, but he shows he still has a lot to learn about how to treat others, especially when it comes to dealing with the opposite sex. And that brings us to our final James at 15 countdown segment. 
we heard Styx inviting us to come sail away. From her 1977 self-titled album, Carla Bonoff with Home. Topping out at number three on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, Eric Clapton with Lay Down Sally. And closing out our James at 15 playlist, Andy Gibb with his number one hit, Love is Thicker Than Water. And that was a look at our James at 15 music countdown for June 29th, 1978. James at 15 will continue in a moment. Introducing the amazing record vacuum by Ronco, the new stereo accessory that protects all your records. Simply insert your record into the record vacuum, turn it on, and your record rotates automatically, sweeping and vacuuming your records instantly. Loosening deep damaging microdust particles, 33 and a thirds, 45, 78s. Any size fits. It makes a great Christmas gift, and it's only 1088. The perfect Christmas gift available at Eckerd Drugs. It's Star Time by Ronco. 17 original hits with Cheap Trick. Peaches and Herb. Little River Band's Lady. Supergroup Blondie, plus Eddie Money, Gloria Gator, and more. Cheryl Lynn's Giant Hit. England Dan and John Ford Cullen. Bob Welch on Star Time. All top hits on one album. Sister Sledge. The Jacksons. Star Time. Album 599. 8-track or cassette 799. Available at Phase Drug, Woolworth, and Ames Big N. Also at King's Department Stores, Newberry, H.L. Green, McCrory, and Record Theater. Behind the Scenes. First, I have to say from a personal perspective, I was too young for the original airing of the series and discovered it in 1985 when I was 16 and the pilot movie aired in syndication. That was the first time I saw a room under a staircase and thought that was so cool how James had his own hobby room under the stairs. Also, I later caught some episodes on the A&E reruns, working weekend stints as a radio station board op as we did not have cable TV at home. So many of these episodes were completely new to me when I viewed them while writing this podcast. James at 15 was created by writer Dan Wakefield, who had been a published author for over 15 years with several books under his belt, including two novels, when initially contacted by David Sontag from Fox Television. These included Going All the Way from 1970, about two young men home from the Korean War, looking for love and trying to make sense of their lives in 1955 America, and starting over from 1973, in which middle-aged Phil starts a new life in Boston after splitting up with his wife and faces the harsh, sometimes funny realities of starting over and searching for love the second time around. A man who spent his teens in the 1940s, Wakefield did research to learn how contemporary youth spoke and acted and went to school campuses in both Boston and L.A. for research, where he attended classes, talked to kids, parents, and teachers, and compiled a glossary of slang of the day. 
As story consultant, Wakefield was very hands-on, working on every episode during his stint on the show. The first half of the series was run by executive producers Martin Manulis and Joseph Hardy, and producer Ernest Lasso. Manulis had certainly been around the TV block, producing Suspense in the early 50s, as well as creating the exceptional drama anthology Playhouse 90. James represented his return to television production after a 15-year absence, being recruited by Fox exec David Sontag. Manulis said the opportunity to work with Dan Wakefield sealed the deal. When Sontag called me, he asked if I would like to produce a series about a teenage boy. I said, I don't think so. He said, Dan Wakefield is writing it. I said, send it over. But Dan had only finished half the first two-hour script. I didn't see how I could commit myself to half a script, but this was the sort of writing you don't find in television. This was the language you never hear on television. These were characters that were genuine originals, not carbons of whatever is popular. What was certainly interesting was that everything was seen from one point of view, from the viewpoint of James. I suppose that's the novelist's approach. And the point of view was real, and the boy's reactions were real, and the way he talked and felt were real. Joe Hardy had been a Broadway director and had about a dozen TV movie directing credits before joining the show. Ernest Lasso had been a producer on Bewitched and The Paul Lynn Show. 16-year-old Lance Kerwin was cast as James Hunter, a likable young actor with every teen appeal. Lance had appeared in episodes of Emergency, Shazam, Little House on the Prairie, and several after-school specials before being cast on NBC's The Family Holvac in 1975. The Depression-era drama starred Glenn Ford and Julie Harris, and although it wasn't long-lived, Lance's acting ability began to be noticed. Director Ralph Sineski told Forgotten TV Lance was the most talented young male juvenile he ever worked with. He also gained attention on the TV movie The Loneliest Runner, a Michael Landon production where he again worked with Landon and Melissa Sue Anderson. Having appeared on so many of their shows, the youth was definitely on NBC's radar when it came time to cast James. Lance's 20-year-old brother Shane came along for the ride, serving as Lance's stand-in on the show. A pair of newcomers was cast as James' friends. This was the first credit for 16-year-old David Hubbard, who had filmed the TV movie Scott Joplin with Billy D. Williams, portraying the legendary ragtime composer at a young age. This TV movie wouldn't air until December 30th, so James at 15 was David's introduction to viewers. David effectively portrayed the streetwise sly that often gave solid advice to James and referred to his advice as slycology. Susan Myers was cast as Marlene, fresh off her appearance on NBC's TV movie The Spell. The acting trio earned high praise from Manulis. Luckily, these kids, particularly Lance and David Hubbard, are so professional, so efficient, so fast, that they can do in four hours more than some actors can do in eight. 
Lyndon Childs had been acting since 1960, making many TV appearances throughout the 60s, from Rawhide to The Twilight Zone, Perry Mason and The Virginian. His face was a familiar one to viewers before being cast as James' father, Paul Hunter. Lynn Carlin began acting in 1968 on the film Faces, then became a TV regular with notable appearances on Dawn, Portrait of a Teenage Runaway, and The Waltons, before her stint on the show as James's mother, Meg Hunter. Wakefield, Manulis, and Hardy were sure they found the right actors for the part within five minutes of her audition. Carlin had high praise for the producers and was optimistic about the longevity of the series. I think parents could learn a lot from this. Our stories are really morality plays. And we are lucky because Dan Wakefield, producer Martin Manulis, and director and co-producer Joe Hardy know exactly what they want. I like decisive people, and I've found three of them. If this series doesn't last six years, we're all crazy. Twelve-year-old Kim Richards' acting experience rivaled that of Lance Kerwin, having acted since 1971. She had been a regular on two series, including Nanny and the Professor, with over 20 individual TV appearances, as well as starring in Disney movies, such as Escape to Witch Mountain, No Deposit, No Return, and five different stories for the magical world of Disney. Deirdre Birthrong was James's sometimes seen sister Kathy in early episodes. She had appeared on the film Carrie, and on episodes of The Streets of San Francisco and The Hardy Boys. One supporting actor repeatedly seen on the series was Marvin Katzoff, as recurring character Dean Llewellyn. Marvin was 27 when he started appearing on James at 15. With his trademark black glasses and conservative combed hairstyle, he was typecast as a nerd, and after the show, appeared mainly in teen exploitation comedies, such as Hots, Midnight Madness, and Hard Bodies. Initially, Man from Atlantis was placed in the Thursday night, 9 p.m. 8 central slot after Chips, which was moved to Tuesday and replaced with the final episode of the ill-fated Richard Pryor show for a single airing on October 20th. Just over two months into production, James at 15 was placed on the Thursday night schedule, sandwiched in between Chips and the short-lived legal drama Rossetti and Ryan. Rossetti and Ryan was replaced by what really happened to the class of 65 later in the season. The producers were originally promised a Sunday night 8 p.m. time slot against the $6 million man and were shocked to read in Variety of their placement one hour later on Thursday night against popular series Barney Miller and Hawaii Five-0. Another disappointment came when NBC never aired more than three or four new episodes in a row, with the show preempted sporadically by TV specials, a practice called stunting. Ironically, the very first Thursday James was preempted, the special was called Super Stunt. NBC later revealed the concept was intended to whet the viewer's appetite for the missing show, then run promos teasing major developments in James's life. James joins a cult. James' best friend dies. James loses his virginity, and so on. Although, to its credit, NBC never floated James around the schedule, allowing it to try to gain a regular viewing audience on Thursday nights, 
there were a couple of strikes against the series that were out of NBC's control. One I'll mention now, the other we'll cover in a bit. First, not all TV markets aired the show. NBC affiliates in both the Atlanta and Charlotte, North Carolina markets didn't air the series, in full or in part, opting instead to air movies or other programming. After four series episodes, Atlanta's WSB Channel 2 pulled the show, along with Class of 65, CPO Sharky, and Chico and the Man, due to its attempts at micromanaging the nightly schedule to maintain its top rating spot. Charlotte's WSOC likewise aired movies in this time slot to sell local primetime advertising. Fortunately, Boston affiliate WBZ Channel 4 that was unable to air the premiere movie due to that prior obligation did air the rest of the series, with this proudly announced in the Boston Globe, which pointed out familiar local faces and places you would see on scenes shot locally. The series was shot mainly on stages 2 and 4 at 20th Century Fox Studios. The high school used in exterior shots in the pilot movie were of the Culver City High School in California. Early location scenes in Boston featured the Park Street MBTA station, the Boston Public Library, the Granary Burying Ground, Fenway Park, and other local landmarks. James was the first series to be set in Boston since 1974's Friends and Lovers, airing on CBS. Having started strong, by December, the show was on the bubble in TV speak, averaging less than a 30 share. But NBC's Paul Klein still expressed faith in the show. It's a terrific show, and we're going to make it better. James is going to become 16. He's been a little naive. The intent was Holden Caulfield, but Holden Caulfield was not naive. The show is going to get a little harder. This mid-December statement seemed an indication everyone may not have been on the same page regarding the future of the show. Dan Wakefield responded to Klein in the press. I'm not sure what Paul means myself. I'd put it a different way, I guess. We've been doing a lot of big issue things, and what we're going to do is more real teenage things more like the teenage subjects of the pilot, a love story, competition with the school jock, more about the school and James's life there. Betting on James's future, NBC gambled and ordered additional episodes, the so-called Back Nine. But the desired ratings never materialized, with the show averaging an anemic 13.7, placing 93rd out of 110, and following the airing of episode 16, the series was canceled, with NBC burning through the final five episodes in June. However, NBC ordering the back nine, ensuring James would receive a full season, came at a price. They fired producers Manulis, Hardy, and Lasso, turning the show over to writer and story editor Ronald Rubin. Associate producers Richard Glassman, who had worked on Planet of the Apes and Starsky and Hutch, and newcomer Tom Lisi, were also added. The series received mainly positive reactions from critics, such as this one from Tom Shales. Not perfect, not revolutionary, not always deliriously urgent. James at 15 is still the most respectable new entertainment series of the season. Consistently, it communicates something about the state of being young, rather than just communicating that it wishes to lure young viewers. 
And if it romanticizes adolescence through the weekly trials and triumphs of its teenage hero, at least it does so in more ambitious, inquisitive, and authentic ways than the average TV teeny bop. Several critics called James the best new drama series that season. The pilot movie and five episodes are recognized for their cultural significance and are archived at the Paley Center for Media. The series was nominated for two Emmy Awards, mentioned earlier, as well as Joe Hardy receiving a Director's Guild of America Award nomination for the episode Friends. MASH producer Gene Reynolds also expressed his love for the show to Dan Wakefield once at a lunch meeting. While the series enjoyed mostly positive reactions from critics and viewers alike, this was not universal. The show garnered negative reactions from a few viewers who called it inappropriate or worse spurred on by hand-wringing, self-appointed TV watchdog groups, such as Del McLaughlin from Morality and Media of St. Louis, who wrote, At what point will local television network affiliates take a stand against the ever-increasing amount of obscene program content? Local affiliates have a choice as to what they will and will not air in their communities. A recent example of this accelerating campaign to corrupt the innocent was the February 9th episode of James at 15, in which James lost his virginity. We feel that this type of subject matter is not appropriate for television. The overall effect of the program was to encourage the young to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage. Although I think Mr. Wakefield would take issue with Dell's assumption regarding the intent of the show, this reveals a key issue the series had to contend with. Unlike most of the world, where sexual matters are frankly dealt with in entertainment, even when young people are involved, the U.S. has always been extremely Puritan in comparison. By far, this was the biggest issue the show faced, the realistic depiction of teenage life, including sexuality even though this was never explicitly depicted. Thus, some viewers indeed objected to the show, such as the anonymous writer with the somewhat dubious initials of BJ, who wrote to Richard Schull's column, Why do we have such trash as Family and Soap and James at 15 on at night when families watch TV? Don't we get enough trash on during the day with the soap operas? Which brings us to the main controversy of the show. In an age when teens can pull up series like Sex Education or The Secret Life of the American Teenager on demand, it may seem incredible now. But James was by many reports the first TV teen character to have sex. At least the first primetime series character to do so. And even when it was dealt with on the show, it was mostly done with euphemisms. He's too kooky for me. She thinks being careful takes away from the romance. <laughs> Wants to play Russian roulette, huh? That's right. Mix it up. Defense, pass, then plunge. Right. And always protect your flanks. I mean, no matter what they say, you be careful. Otherwise, you get mousetrapped. Trapped. You got it. Better safe than sorry. Yeah, right. I got it. So Sunday night, I, I laid low. I mean, a man can't indulge in a high life all the time, right? Right. I mean, you got to conserve your bottle juices for the daily struggle, right? Yeah, I conserve my juices all weekend. Oh, 
when I was in college, most girls believed that it was better for you to wait until you got married. I was one of them. Well, uh, what about Dad? Was he happy before you started going together? Well, I'm quite sure he was on a few occasions. I mean, it was um, much more accepted then for men to <clears throat> get happy before they got married. At the halfway point of the series, NBC wanted James to lose his virginity on the show. And Wakefield agreed to write a script depicting this. However, they greatly differed on how this would be dealt with. When it came time at mid-season for this episode of James's life to transpire, Wakefield presented a script which he felt offered a moving, realistic, sensitive treatment of James's first sexual experience. What NBC's broadcast standards executives Ralph Daniels and Jerry Stanley took issue with was the fact that in Wakefield's version, James intended to be responsible and use birth control, saying the viewing public would not stand for mentions of birth control on television, even if it was only referred to by the euphemism, responsible. In fact, NBC had four conditions for James to cross the threshold into manhood. First, he could not have casual sex and needed to be in love, a condition that doesn't seem that unreasonable. Second, he had to fall in love with a girl that wouldn't be around for the rest of the series, allowing him to be free to have other romantic storylines. Third, he must commit the deed unplanned in the moment of spontaneous passion, which makes way for the fourth. James had to be punished for his actions, with worry first over the fear of pregnancy, then in another episode that he had contracted VD, things he wouldn't have to worry about had he been responsible and had protected sex. Dan Wakefield refused to go along with these decrees that seemed right out of the Hayes Code and quit the show. Thus, with episode 12, The Gift, the series advanced James a year, renaming the series title to James at 16, with the episode rewritten by Ronald Rubin, and the ridiculous plot element of James's uncle gifting him with a prostitute was added, something that seemed out of the 1940s. Jerry Stanley, however, defended NBC's stance. The picture we had was James and the girl, in effect children, having a sexual experience and being very, very young in the eyes of the viewers. We don't want youngsters watching the show to feel that if you have contraceptives, then it's all right to have a sexual experience. Ironically, with all the flack Wakefield and producers got from NBC over James being responsible, over at CBS, a month before the infamous episode aired, Judy Bloom's story, Forever, aired as a TV movie. This week on the CBS Friday Night Movie. He's tall and blonde and very handsome, and he's a great basketball player. It was a time to live and a time to love, the first love, and they thought it would be forever. My life, nothing will ever mean more to me. Forever, if only for a moment. Friday night at 9 o'clock, 8 central and mountain time. Forever featured high school girl Stephanie Zimbalist going to a birth control clinic to get a diaphragm prior to making love to boyfriend Dean Butler, with the birth control method explicitly referred to by name. Western society failed to collapse, and life went on, 
with Forever barely registering a blip on the radar. I couldn't even find any record of controversy regarding the movie. To the contrary, it was praised by critics as well as Action for Children's Television, who also had been favorable to James at 15. All the NBC hand-wringing triggering Wakefield's decision to leave the show was for naught. By the time the episode went to air, the topic NBC censors feared mentioning, even by euphemism, had already been dealt with on another network. The kerfluffle over James losing his virginity was written up in People magazine and nationally run newspaper articles. When People magazine asked star Lance Kerwin about the issue, he replied, It's about time. Predictably, the episode did earn negative reaction from some viewers, such as this one from Cecilia Mazzarini. I must register my disgust. My family has really enjoyed James at 15, and then I read about the February 9th episode. There really are so few programs the children are permitted to watch because of the sex and or violence, and now there is one less. Please print the addresses of NBC and 20th Century Fox. I must protest this, even if it is a futile effort. My children are 5, 9, 11, and 12. However, James at 15 seemed unfairly treated for yet another reason, which requires an examination of television content of the era. This was early 1978, the height of what was called jiggle television, a term coined by none other than NBC executive Paul Klein to criticize rival network ABC's shows like Three's Company, an American retread of a British comedy where a straight male who, in order to share an apartment with two straight females, must conceal his heterosexuality from the landlord and pose as a gay man. Three's Company would frequently highlight the attributes of star Suzanne Somers in shorty pajamas or tight t-shirts, as well as the endless parade of John Ritter's character Jack's girlfriends, and feature those infamous misunderstandings where an innocent situation was overheard and imagined to be something X-rated. Charlie's Angels, Aaron Spelling's TV action drama about three little girls who went to the police academy, is often referred to in the context of jiggle television. While there was very little, if any, overt sex depicted, the three female leads were often seen in swimsuits or in various situations in outfits without the benefit of bras. The show is also credited, however, with inspiring young girls to reach out for careers outside what was once considered traditionally acceptable. The Love Boat, which some may not immediately place on this list, but it absolutely belongs, perhaps at the top. Plunging necklines were seen on evening wear, endless extras in bikinis were on the Lido deck, as well as scenes that took advantage of the jacuzzi, were all part of a production directive from ABC to intentionally sex up the show. This, of course, does not count the TV movies of the week. 1975's Hustling, about the New York City prostitution scene. While Someone I Touched had Cloris Leachman dealing with her unfaithful husband contracting a venereal disease were two such examples. In a poor choice of words, Paul Klein at NBC would bizarrely label the type of titillation offered by shows like Three's Company, Kid Porn, due to the appeal to young, especially male viewers, 
newly aware of the sex appeal of the female bodies and double entendres presented. Indeed, the show was a popular topic on the fifth grade playground, as I recall. Klein would further define his jiggle television term to be when you have a young, attractive television personality running at top speed, wearing a limited amount of underwear. Apart from Charlie's Angels, one of his favorite examples was ABC's Sugar Time with Barbie Benton, which was a story about three rock stars, but it opened with them playing volleyball. In the middle of the show, they played volleyball again. That made it possible for them to jiggle a lot. In response to this programming, NBC censor Herminio Trevisius proudly stated, We don't show any frontal, backal, or sidal nudity. A statement which today evokes the Family Guy episode that satirized the FCC and network television censorship. Hi there, and welcome to the Peter Griffin Sideboob Hour. A wonderful look back on all the partial nudity network television used to offer. Paul Klein would thus famously say regarding NBC's intent to ostensibly offer a more sophisticated approach to programming. If ABC is doing kiddie porn, NBC will give the audience adult porn. But NBC, under the guise of this supposed moral high road, had aired arguably some of the most exploitative TV movies of the 70s. 1974's Born Innocent, starring Linda Blair, dealt with the physical, psychological, and sexual abuse of a teenage girl, and contained scenes still shocking today. NBC's crass promos and print ads promised a women-in-prison type film with the gross tagline, She was born innocent, but that was 14 years ago. The movie aired in some time zones as early as 7 p.m. and generated 700 phone calls from objecting viewers at the New York NBC office alone, a scenario repeated at local affiliates across the country. The infamous two-and-a-quarter-minute scene the movie is known for, the details of which I will leave you to look up on your own, allegedly inspired a copycat crime four days after it aired, and the scene was pulled from future airings. Dawn, Portrait of a Teenage Runaway, presented the Brady Bunch's Eve Plum as a teenage prostitute, and Alexander, The Other Side of Dawn, showed a look at teen gay male hustling, and these led to a whole slew of these portrait TV movies, like Sharon, Portrait of a Mistress, and Katie, Portrait of a Centerfold. Not to mention The Dark Secret of Harvest Home, where the Harvest Lord sexually took the hero's wife, surrounded by robed women ritualistically chanting, Plow the furrow, make thee the corn. NBC even had their own Jiggle TV series attempts with Cover Girls, about fashion models who were spies, and The Roller Girls, featuring a scantily clad female roller derby team. Yes, despite their denouncement of ABC's programming, NBC specialized in salacious and social issue sensationalism. Thus, with a review of their programming history, NBC's moral high road about not providing a bad example for youth by James being responsible enough to have protected sex with the girlfriend he loved comes across as disingenuous and sanctimonious.
but this approach allowed them to both exploit the sexual storylines of the series and at the same time come off as disapproving of it. Nine years following that James at 15 episode, almost to the day, NBC aired an episode of Valerie, which featured the first primetime television usage of the word condom. In the episode, 17-year-old David, played by Jason Bateman, plans ahead for the potential of sex with girlfriend Lori and gives his mother Valerie the wrong package by mistake, and she discovers his purchase. This spurs a conversation about being responsible when becoming sexually active. Covering all the bases, the words, birth control, protection, the pill, and responsible were also all used. Still, even in 1987, not everyone was ready for such a discussion on television. Some NBC affiliates aired the show after prime time, and at least one station, Albany's WNYT, chose not to air it at all. Still, a home video of the episode was distributed to teachers and health educators as a teaching tool to promote awareness of safer sex. Whatever happened to Paul Klein? Klein, undeniably a television business genius, actually had two stints at NBC. The first was in the 60s, when he served as an audience measurement expert. He left NBC the first time in 1970 and co-founded Computer Television Incorporated, where he pioneered and developed the concept of hotel vision, or pay-per-view movies delivered to hotel rooms, offering mainstream Hollywood movies like Patton, Barbarella, and The Dirty Dozen for $2.50. Selling his interest in this business, he returned to NBC in 1976. In 1979, he again left NBC after new exec Fred Silverman was brought on. He established PKO Television, a production management company that initially sold content exclusively to NBC. And in 1982, Paul Klein founded the Playboy Channel. Thanks for watching. Good night. James at 15 will continue in a moment. Do you scramble eggs like this? You never get a perfectly blended egg, and then there's the cleanup. But now there's the egg scrambler. It scrambles an egg while it's still in the shell. The egg scrambler perfectly blends the egg white and yolk in only five seconds. Scrambled eggs, French toast, and omelets not only look better, but taste better. If your kids don't like the looks of runny egg whites, get the egg scrambler by Ronco, a great Christmas gift for only $7.77. Walgreens, Woolworth, Wilco, Osco Service Merchandise, Riverty, Montgomery Ward. Thursday on Chips, danger appears on the freeway. While freeway plants suddenly disappear. Those guys are in our sector now and it's up to us to catch them. Chips, Thursday at 8, 7 Central and Mountain, right before James at 15. Amidst all the behind-the-scenes turmoil, lead actor Lance Kerwin enjoyed his time on the show. Lance was the runt of a family of five sons from L.A. By the time Lance was eight, his parents were divorced, and his mother Lois, a former booking agent, had met his future stepfather, actor and jazz musician Ernie Phillips. 
Entertainment ran in the family, but the parents worried about Lance and Brother Shane's growing up in the status-conscious Laurel Canyon subdivision of L.A. So, in 1971, the struggling family packed up and moved to the small resort area of Lake Elsinore, some 80 miles southeast. The area was popular in the early 20th century, with celebs looking to escape the Hollywood scene. Bella Lugosi famously built a house there, which still stands. At Lake Elsinore, Lance chopped wood, gathered eggs, tended goats, and helped renovate a Spanish-style five-bedroom house that was the family home for a number of years. Lance struggled with reading during his elementary school years. So, when Lance got turned on to acting at an early age, stepdad Ernie would bring home his scripts, and the family read them at the table. He later would organize family table reads of Shakespeare and Stanislavski's techniques of acting, sophisticated stuff for a preteen. Tagging along on his stepdad's gigs, he got an agent and started getting roles at age 12. Mother Lois set some ground rules from the beginning. A lot of Hollywood child actors are so mixed up and bratty. We agreed to let Lance act only if he behaved like a normal human being. The effort paid off, and Lance did well in school, receiving honors from Elsinore Junior High. After series production began, his family temporarily relocated to a Marina Del Rey apartment during filming, which Lance called the cell block. Lance was up at 6 every morning for the half-hour drive to Fox Studios, accompanied by Mom Lois. On set, Lance's schooling consisted of daily three-hour tutoring sessions in 20-minute increments, wedged in between filming takes. Because he was a minor, he could only work four hours a day, and this was strictly observed, with Lance home by 6 p.m. for family dinner, which consisted of healthy foods. Every night, the family went over the next day's script with him. His spare time was spent skateboarding, jetting around the marina in his little 12-foot sailboat, or playing the flute in the family jazz band. Prior to series filming, he had spent his last two summers with his brother Ken in Hawaii. No stranger to swimming or surfing, Lance was athletic competing in the Battle of the Network Stars in both 1977 and 1978. During the shooting season, his limited time didn't allow for a girlfriend. It wouldn't be fair to me or the girl if I tried to go steady. I move around so much, I don't have time to give to just one special girl. Like James, Lance was into both still and motion picture photography and had taken underwater film footage during those summers in Hawaii. At the suggestion of his parents, Lance took the initiative to contact Nikon to see if they wished to provide camera equipment for the show. I always liked photography, but photography is expensive, right? Well, when we were filming the show, my parents are like, why don't you call Nikon and see if they want James to use a Nikon in the show? So I called Nikon and said, Hey, I'm doing this show where the character's a photographer. Would you like him to use a Nikon? They said, Yeah. So I said, Well, I'm going to need some equipment for the show, and then I probably need some equipment for myself, too, so I can learn how to do it myself. And they're like, 
make a list of what you want. So we wrote up a list of all these different cameras and lenses and power packs and filters. And we figured they'll say no to some and yes to some. But they gave us everything. So I had all this wonderful Nikon equipment. 20th Century Fox would give me the film. NBC would develop it for me. So I took thousands and thousands of pictures throughout the time I was working on James at 15. Even when I'd go to, like, Battle of the Network Stars, I would take pictures. So I was taking pictures of Cheryl Teagues and Cindy Crawford and Victoria Principal. And I loved doing that. I'll bet. The original music theme used for the show was titled James, written and composed by Richard Baskin, who recruited friend Lee Montgomery to sing the theme. Baskin worked on the music for the films Nashville and Honeysuckle Rose. Lee Montgomery, the singer, not the boy actor known for 70s movies Ben and Burnt Offerings, is a vocalist and musician. He was a member of classic rock band Joyous Noise that released two albums in the early 70s. He appeared on albums from Hoyt Axton, Guthrie Thomas, and worked with good friend and Wrecking Crew member Mike Melvoin on additional film projects. Montgomery sang the Calling Me Home Chicago tourism ads in 1985. The song was created for the Chicago Convention and Tourism Bureau for their $10 million tourism campaign and subsequently released on vinyl. But you are likely far more familiar with his numerous commercial jingles in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. His raspy but smooth voice is recognizable from such ad campaigns as Welcome to Miller Time for Miller Beer. Bring out your best. And Bring Out Your Best, which won some awards for the ad agency making the Budweiser Light beer spots. He was understandably known in the business as the food and beverage king. You may recognize him from other regional ad campaigns, such as Stater Brothers Grocers on the West Coast. He is now retired and lives with his wife in Chicago. I reached out to Lee Montgomery, who was able to provide me with some of this background info, including that, for a time, some of his song royalties mistakenly went to young actor Lee Montgomery before this was corrected. Also, Montgomery was actually unaware there was a second theme song used for the series, until I mentioned it. Yes, the original folksy, harmonica-heavy, introspective theme was replaced with a more up-tempo, soft rock version with optimistic lyrics. The second theme, It's All Up To You, used from episode 12 onward, was written by Dan Seals, billed as England Dan, and John Ford Coley, who also performed the song. While you may remember their songs, we'll never have to say goodbye. It's Sad to Belong, or Love is the Answer. They are likely most remembered for their 1976 hit, I'd Really Love to See You Tonight. The duo split in 1980, and Dan Seals died in 2009. Coley still performs, and his new album, Long Way Home, live in Israel and L.A., is now for sale. 
One other notable aspect of the series was how it integrated popular music of the day into episodes. Remember, starting with episode 5, these songs were often heard in the sub shop after school hangout as diegetic music, where it is assumed the characters in the story are hearing the same music the viewer does. This is the opposite of non-diegetic music, such as a film score, where it is understood the viewer is hearing music for their benefit, which the characters on screen do not hear. Nearly 60 songs were distinctly heard over the course of the series, which you heard listed as we reviewed the episodes. This creates an enormous issue for any potential future release of the show. In the 2019 Forgotten TV year-end supplemental podcast, I discussed how that music clearances are the single most problematic issue facing DVD releases of decades-old TV series. In the 70s and 80s, permission to use music was only obtained for broadcast TV, usually coming with an expiration date. To then continue rerun syndication or to publish a home video release, music rights must be renegotiated with the current rights holders of each song heard in the show. When attempting to renegotiate music rights for old TV shows, studios often find the license fees for continuing to include the same music clips to be cost prohibitive, or that rights holders refuse to license said music, or that music rights may be tied up in a legal dispute. When this happens, where possible, the original music is often changed on DVD or digital streaming releases. This has happened to WKRP in Cincinnati, The Greatest American Hero, Quantum Leap, Northern Exposure, and other shows. Just the legal process of tracking down and negotiating music clearances can take years if a series contained enough music, as happened with The Wonder Years with its nearly 300 songs, or Miami Vice with its 350 songs. Add to this the fact that many TV shows are not published on DVD by the studios that own them, many of which seem uninterested in releasing some of their older content. These older shows are typically licensed to a small, boutique DVD studio that specializes in this, such as Shout Factory, Mill Creek, Kino Lorber, and others. If it's determined music must be replaced, the DVD studio can run into yet another problem. They may find it not possible to remove the music in question from the existing audio. This can happen if the original production audio elements no longer exist or cannot be found. If this is the case, such as when only film prints or video masters of the final produced episode exist, the audio present on these is as it was mixed for broadcast. This happened with the 1987 Fox series, Werewolf. In 2009, Shout Factory was working on a DVD release of the series. Two music artists would not license their music for the release. Thus, their songs would have to be removed from any episodes that contained them. However, it was found that no separate audio elements existed, and the songs in question were heard over dialogue in scenes that could not be cut out. The release was thus scrapped. 
I fear similar issues may be at work for James at 15. Currently, neither Shout Factory nor Mill Creek are pursuing a DVD release, and I received no answer from 20th Television. But even if a release was greenlit, with clearances for most of the music obtained, a studio would likely run into a snag on at least some of the music. The show is now 43 years old at time of recording. While I'm sure finished film prints of the show have been stored away, did 20th Television, now owned by Disney, keep and store separate production elements from a one-season TV show from the late 70s over all these years? When I find that even entire episodes of other shows from the 80s cannot be found, I'm doubtful the answer is yes. When we come back, we'll talk to show creator Dan Wakefield and writer April Smith. When Grizzly Adams saves Nakoma's life, it signals the beginning of a lifelong friendship, and the two blood brothers teach each other the secrets of survival in the wilderness. The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, Wednesday at 8, 7 Central and Mountain Time on NBC. Well, today on Forgotten TV, he's been a published writer and journalist for some 60 years. His books have become feature films, and his articles have run in magazines such as The Atlantic and GQ. Today, he's here to discuss his 1977 TV series, James at 15. I'd like to welcome to Forgotten TV, Mr. Dan Wakefield. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, thank you very much for coming on today and talking about this over 40-year-old television show that, uh, that we've been uh, discussing on this podcast. Before we start to talk about that in depth, uh, if you just want to give us a, just a brief background about how you got started as being a writer. I know that you were a columnist on your high school paper. What, uh, what got you into writing in the beginning? Well, I think it was sports, really. Uh, I, as a kid, read all the sports pages. And in those days, there was a morning and afternoon paper in Indianapolis. And the whole world of Indianapolis was about, of Indiana was about basketball. And I loved it. And the first thing I published was uh, the Shortridge Daily Echo. We were the first uh, daily high school paper in the country. I think after us, there was another one for a while. But uh, Shortridge High School in Indianapolis, where which has a couple of distinguished graduates. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut was 10 years before me and uh, 12 years before me. And uh, at the same time, Vonnegut was there, and he was in the fiction club with uh, a writer. I'm trying to think of her name now, but uh, she was the first head writer of the I Love Lucy show. And when I was out in L.A. and working on James of 15, I called her up because there had been a story about her in the L.A. Times that she had come out of retirement to save a failing sitcom called Alice. And she had brought it back to number one in the ratings. So uh, that was another somebody I heard about in high school. But uh, when I went in as a freshman, 
to uh, to get an assignment from the paper. They assigned me as as a freshman, as a cub reporter, to cover a meeting of the Stamp Club. Well, I knew that wasn't uh, what was was going to get me inspired. So on my own, I went out to Butler Field House, where the state uh, high school basketball tournament was played, and I wrote a kind of mood piece about uh, the tournament and what it meant to everybody and uh, handed it in to the Echo advisor. And she said, did you write this? And I said, yes. And she put it in the paper and that's how I got started. So by my sophomore year, I was writing a sports column uh, in the Shortridge Daily Echo. And uh, my, I, I was writing on Thursday and on Tuesday, the sports column was written by uh, a classmate named Dick Luger, who later became a U.S. senator you, I'm sure, know about. And that led to you, uh, after college, writing for uh, the, I believe it was the Princeton Packet? Uh, yes, uh, yes. The Princeton Packet, New Jersey's oldest weekly, and which was owned by another Indiana guy, uh, Barney Kilgore was the publisher of the Wall Street Journal, and he lived in Princeton and bought his hometown weekly paper so that he could fiddle with the paper and have fun with it. And some of your early work was, was covering the Emmett Till murder trial, right? Uh, yeah. I met, When I was in Princeton, I reviewed a book by Murray Kempton, uh, who was a columnist for the New York Post, who later won the Pulitzer and uh, he became a friend and mentor. When I started reading about the Emmett Till murder trial, I thought, oh, my God, I would do anything to see that, to write about it. And Kempton got me an assignment from The Nation magazine. My payment was a round-trip bus ticket from New York City to Sumner, Mississippi. And uh, that was... Uh, an amazing experience, and that began my my writing career. Really, of course, you you started publishing novels, or uh, you you uh, became published, and noticed primarily for your nineteen seventy book, "Going All the Way," which uh, much later yeah. became a, a feature film. But that possibly uh, led to you becoming on the radar of uh, uh, some television people. So that leads us to. The, the conversation of how you got involved in uh, creating a TV show for NBC. Well, uh, I was innocently uh, working on a novel, living in Boston and having a nice, quiet life. And the phone rang one day and uh, somebody on the other line said, would you like to write a television show? And I said, sure. So it was sort of like when somebody calls and said, if you can answer this question, you'll get a year's uh, free lessons in the Arthur Arthur Murray dance studio. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, then he, uh, this was a man named David Sontag, he, who was the, uh, at that time, producer for Fox Television, which has nothing to do with Fox News right now. Right. But it was just a, you know, a TV production company. And uh, 
he asked if like to have me, he would send me a ticket and take me to lunch in New York. I was in Boston to meet with somebody from NBC. So we met this kind of grumpy guy from NBC uh, who said uh, he wanted to have a, a series, a TV series about a boy growing up in America. That was all. That that was the whole, the idea. And so I thought I'd never hear from anybody again. By the way, I realized why he was grumpy. He had thought he could get J.D. Salinger to write such a series. And uh, instead, he was presented with me. So that was, uh, must have made him grumpy. But I, again, thought nothing would come of it. And then... David Sontag, the man who had initiated all this, uh, now wanted me to come to L.A. and meet with NBC people out there, West Coast NBC programming. So, again, he would pay my way and also a a woman I was living with and put us up at the Beverly Hills Hotel and so on. So we went out there and... um, the next morning, very early, David picked me up to drive me to this meeting at NBC. And he said, well, have you, uh, have you thought of the story yet? And I said, uh, no, I thought that's what we were going to do. We were meeting people to where we could sit around and think of the story. He says, no, no. He said, we're going out to sell the story. I said, well, we might as well turn back because there is no story. <laughs> and he said, don't worry about a thing. That's when I first learned about television. There's no story, but don't worry about a thing. We're going to go sell it. Mm-hmm. So he said, well, uh, have you thought of, it's about a boy growing up in America. Have you thought of a boy's name? I said, yeah, I kind of, I always liked the name James I had an Uncle Jim who was my favorite relative. He said, okay, good. Well, how old was the boy? Is the boy in your imagination? I said, well, I thought, you know, growing up, uh, 15 would be a good age where you start being aware of new things. He said, said, that's it. I said, what? He said, well, we'll call the show James of 15. And I said, yeah, but there's no story. And he said, don't worry about a thing. So we go to this big meeting at NBC, and it's being chaired by a very nice, attractive woman. Uh, And the whole thing reminded me of Faye Dunaway and the movie Network. This woman was running the meeting, and there were three or four men who were her uh, aides. And uh, we started off with them thanking me for coming out. And uh, David Sontag presented me saying, you know, I was a novelist. I had come all the way from the East, which sounded like Damascus, but uh, it was only Boston. But anyway, everybody said, oh, we thank you so much, you know, that you have deigned to come out and write for poor little us. Uh, so I just hearing all these wonderful things. And finally the woman in charge said to David Sondag, so what's the story? So I just looked down at the floor and he said, you know, we could bore you with a lot of standards, 
thought series uh, kind of heads, outlines, uh, plots. Says, but this is something really special. This is this is unusual. This is something that's really new in television. And you know, I'm going to tell you the the title of the series and. You'll either like you'll you'll get it or not. If not, that's all right. We have a meeting coming up with ABC. Oh well, please, please tell us what is the title? What is this amazing new concept? And Sontag says we call it James at fifteen. They go, oh my god, that's incredible! This is fabulous, and everybody is just excited. And then the woman running the meeting says, but. Wait, wait. So what if it what if it's a hit? What if it runs to uh, another year? What do you call it, Ben? We call it James at sixteen. Oh my God, this is ingenious. So we walk out of that meeting, and I said, "What just happened?" And David said to me, "You have to go home and write a television script." I said, "I've never even seen a television script." And then he gave me the one good piece of advice of the whole thing. He said, just write the best story you can. And I did that. And that became a two-hour pilot that mm-hmm. was number one in the ratings for Labor Day weekend of 1977. So uh, that was a great thing. And we were all excited. And we were told that uh, the show would go on Sunday night at 7, which was great. We'd be up against a $6 million man, and he was getting kind of rusty, and some of the parts were dropping off. (laughs) Uh, We thought that was ideal, and it was a time kids could watch. And so we're, we're, we're starting to work on the show. We're filming the first episodes. Somebody comes in and says, uh, hey, uh, we're going to be on Thursday night at 9. I said, what? What did you hear? That's a weird rumor. He said, well, I read it in Variety. Well, so without any preface or being warned of this, instead of Sunday night at 7, our show for young people was going to be at 9 o'clock on a Thursday night, and our uh Rivals would be Barney Miller and Hawaii Five O, both of which were very strong serials. So it was sort of like it's almost as if the grumpy guy said, "Let's, let's get rid of this thing." And also, the grumpy guy from NBC was doing something which was supposedly unique and clever, called stunting, which meant that. You wouldn't show a series every week in a row. You would uh, have two episodes, and then you'd have a magic show, or you'd have two episodes, and then you'd have a dance show or something. So it was, it was really hard to get into the to the stream, the narrative of it. Yeah. But uh, we had a lot of people who loved us, and... Uh, especially a group called Action for Children's Television and a lot of support, but we got support from everybody except NBC. And then uh, 
we had, we had all been worried about, I think we had, we were commissioned for nine shows and then it was going to be whether it was picked up for another, uh, nine. I mean, the, the, the two hour movie kind of as, as two out as two episodes. So anyway, it would be a season would be 20 shows. So we were picked up, but the hitch was they fired the producer and director and they were really the heart of the show. I remember one of the actors said to me that, you know, Dan, you should just go back to Boston. This stuff is crazy. And in fact, that would have been a very good move. But I stayed on. And at the same time that they signed us up for more shows that would make a complete season, the grumpy guy came out from New York. And we had a meeting, those of us who were left, had a meeting with him in which he told us what the next three shows would be, Uh the next three episodes. He said, uh, the first, uh, James will turn 16 and lose his virginity. Uh, The next, James will fear that he has contracted a venereal disease. And the third show, he'll get his driver's license. Well, I to this day don't quite know what that sequence stood for. But anyway, I said, well, I really want to write the one where he uh, loses his virginity because we had already had a run-in with NBC with standards and practices, which is the fancy term for the censors. Mm -hmm they had uh, taken out of the pilot a very sort of hard-to-find reference to a contraceptive, and uh, they didn't want even any of this veiled reference to such a thing. And uh, so I said, you know, we've got to be honest, and we've got to know James is supposed to be a role model. So he's got to know about birth control. And I want to be able to be able to speak about that honestly in the script. They, oh, yes, yes, yes. Say anything you want. You have total freedom. Mm-hmm. Well, this is programming, not the censors. And so I knew it was going to be hard to do this and to get by the censors at NBC. But I figured out what I thought was a foolproof way and that James before going to bed with the girl uh, he says to her now uh, are you going to be responsible or am I supposed to be responsible and it's clear that the meaning is that you know does she have birth control or is he supposed to supply the birth control and amazingly enough Orwellian as it may sound, they said that I couldn't use the word uh, responsible. So with that, I quit the show mm-hmm. and uh, and stayed on another couple of years, which I wrote three scripts, one of which got made with Lynn Redgrave and Brian Dennehy, and that was my <clears throat> television career. I have to ask, the grumpy guy, yeah. um, is this Paul Klein yeah. that we're talking about? 
I think that was him, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that was the guy, yeah. That's been my assumption in the reading of all of the yeah. material over the years regarding right. the production, that, is that yeah. Uh, yeah. Your, your contact, your main person at NBC. I never, that, saw, I, I never saw that guy smile once <laughs> in my life. Never. And, you know, programming said we could do anything, and then they knew, of course, that standards and practices could take it away. So that was the little game. What's really ironic, that was in, I think, the end of November or 1st of December in 1977. Mm -hmm. The following March, CBS had a movie of the week based on uh, Judy Bloom's novel, Forever. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene in which a young woman, I think 16, goes to a uh, Planned Parenthood clinic and gets a diaphragm and nobody said a word about it. And after that, the floodgates open, but then anything could be said and, and referred to. Yeah. In fact, that, uh, that TV movie, uh, that featured Zeph, uh, Stephanie Zimbalist, um, actually aired in early January. So it ended up airing. Oh, really? Yes, sir. It ended up airing a month before the uh, infamous uh, episode twelve, "The Gift of uh, for James at 16. So the the idea that the, that topic couldn't be breached on primetime television uh, involving teenagers had already happened on another network, and so all of the hand wringing was really over nothing. Well, I know that they were terrified that the Catholic Church would say something bad about them, but uh, or, you know, take away from their uh, viewership. Mm-hmm. But it was all in their own heads. It, it wasn't a reality. Yeah. But it was too bad because it was, it was, I really think, you know, we had a good show and a lot of people liked it. The guy who was the, the TV critic of the Washington Post was a special champion of ours, and he was pretty well known at that time. But I can't remember his his name. Tom Shales, probably. Yeah, yes, Shales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of the critics yeah. gave uh, gave the pilot movie, especially, but also the series, yeah. uh, high praise um, for being yeah. uh, uh, for yeah. realism, for uh, the 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 writing. Um, and, and which you, uh, I've read, ha- had to do a little research. You did some field work before writing the show uh, where you, you yeah. actually went to hung- hang out at a high school uh, to observe modern-day youth. Yeah, I, uh, I guess I was, let's see, I was born in 1932, <laughs> so in 77. Uh, 45-ish, I guess? 45, yeah. And I don't have any children. I have a wonderful goddaughter, but I have no children of my own. So I I wanted to be realistic, I guess, the journalism in me. And so I I went to high schools. I sat in on classes. I talked to kids both in Boston and then when I got to L.A. uh, I think I went to Pacific Palisades High School. And, you know, just sort of felt like I was trying to be roughly 
realistic. So did they include you on any of the casting when it came time to cast these roles? No, but I I, I got to sit in on it, and it, it was very impressive. I mean, the director was Joe Hardy, mm-hmm. who's a wonderful man, a brilliant man, and he had... Uh, just come from directing a a hit show on Broadway, uh, the musical of Charlie Brown. And the producer was Martin Manulis, who had just been head of the American Film Institute, but he had worked in early television, worked on, I think there was an early series uh, called The something of the loves of Dobie Gillis. Yes. But anyway, Dobie Gillis was a kid. And he also then was a producer on Playhouse 90, one of the big <clears throat> prestige uh, TV shows of the early days. And they were both really uh, brilliant men and, and great people to work with. And NBC couldn't stand them. <laughs> um, for one thing, Martin in particular just wouldn't take any gut from him. I remember in an early meeting with NBC and, and I was there and Joe Hardy and Martin and this was before the show, you know, when it was first an idea, somebody, one of the NBC guys is saying, well, you know, you're making the father of James a college professor. People might not relate to that. That seems a little too uh, intellectual. And uh, and Martin stood up, got real red in the face. Says, "Oh, okay, all right. We'll we'll make him a garbage man." Then uh, write that down, garbage man. Then mm-hmm. they say, "Oh, no, no, no. That's all right. That's all right. He could be a professor." And uh, so you know, we didn't know how to play politics or didn't care to mm-hmm. and um, and that was uh, part of our downfall with the network or our never being loved by them or maybe it all went back to Paul Klein wishing that J.D. Salinger had written the series yeah Martin Manulis uh, had been away from television for about 15 years uh, and that represented uh, coming back to TV um, to work uh, to yeah. work on this this series, and uh, it actually th- he got lured to work on the show uh, because you were involved. Well, I I think no, I let's not put it that way. It was it was because he liked the script, and that wasn't because I was involved. It was because he liked the script, and he said it was the first thing he'd seen that really seemed to him fresh and. Uh, and, and something of interest that he'd like to be part of. So that's how I got involved, but it was very lucky for me. And I always treasure that uh, time of working with him and with Joe. Yeah. Did you, uh, what did you think of uh, Lance Kerwin's casting and his, and his portrayal of the character? Oh, I thought he was great. I thought everybody who was the, the woman, um, she was actually older, but she played uh, the the sort of rich girl, socialite girl. Ah, yes, uh, Paisley. The character of Paisley was. Uh... Yeah, 
Yeah, who was the the actress? She was a wonderful. They all were great. Yeah. Lisa Pelican. Yes, Lisa Pelican. My God, and I remember I sat in on that was one of the uh, the casting uh, calls that I sat in on when they were interviewing her, and they asked her to read for both the rich girl and the sort of intellectual girl who wanted to be like Margaret Mead. Marlene, uh-huh. Yeah, and and she, uh, Lisa, made, you know, she read each part with total credibility. And afterwards, I remember, I was sitting in the room with Martin and Joe, and when she left, I said, how did she do that? And Martin said, now you've seen an actress. And that was very moving to me. That was one of my questions. Why was the uh, the Paisley character dropped, do you think? She only appeared in two episodes. Um, the first regular series episode's Friends, uh, and then the uh, the one where she had the love interest of uh, James's old friend who ended up dying in the episode, one of the most uh, critically acclaimed episodes that, that was run. Um, what, uh, what was it? Uh, just a casting decision, or was she? Va- no, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't that we didn't love her. Uh, I think she had other commitments, or I really don't remember the details. But I know everybody loved working with her. I mean, all of the cast, everybody. There, there weren't any problem people or. The people who played the mother and father were wonderful. What was the name of the man who played the father? Lyndon Childs. Lyndon Childs. Yeah, I remember he was the one who said to me when they fired Martin Joe, he said, Dan, you know, <laughs> you, you should go back to Boston. You know, this is a crazy world. And uh, he, he was right just took me longer than uh, I should have taken his advice at the time. But uh, while it happened, and and I swear, I think if they had actually liked the show, if they had, if NBC had cared about it, uh, we would have run forever. And it was sort of funny when Paul Klein came and told us James had to, loses virginity to up the ratings. Uh, and uh, we weren't even thinking of that. I think if, if Martin and Joe were, and I were in charge, he probably wouldn't have lost his virginity until he was 32. But uh, I know this. there was no reason the show wouldn't have gone on. And one of my great pleasures in being the story editor I'll never forget, I know you've talked to my friend April Smith, mm-hmm. and um, and I had known her from Boston. She had worked on the first edition of, it was in the Cambridge Phoenix, which became the Boston Phoenix. It was one of the first alternative uh, weeklies, and she and I got to be buddies, and I knew that... Uh, when I was out there, uh, when I had first come out and we were just getting started, 
uh, I knew that she was in Boston and, and working for an ad company, uh, ad agency, and uh, working on a account for a company that made pickles. And she had to think up pickle jokes. And uh, I also knew that she was a terrific writer. In fact, she just had a story in the Atlantic. And I called her up and I said, April, this is, I'm calling you during a time. This is one of the two weeks in my life when I will have power. And I want you to get on a plane and come to LA and check in at the Marmont. And I can guarantee you, I can get you a job writing a script for James of 15. And so she did that. And not only did she get to write a script for James, but the day she was to arrive, uh, David Sontag called me into his office and said, Dan, uh, do you know any young writers, somebody really fresh who's never written for TV, but who writes good dialogue? I've got an idea for a pilot for a series. And I looked at my watch. I said, David, that writer will be arriving in about three hours at LAX, and I will bring her here. And I took picked up April from the Marmot, took her to David's office, and after they talked for 15 minutes, he asked her to write the pilot, and which she did. It was something that didn't get produced, but it was a good was a good piece of writing, of course. And then she wrote, I think, mean, two scripts for James, and they were superb. Yeah, and she ended up novelizing the uh, pilot film and the first episode for the for Dell Books. That's that's right. Yeah. Can I ask what what gave you the idea of uh, the character James having the the Walter Mitty fantasies? Um, I think I guess because I I had those fantasies as a oh. kid. You know, I mean, I remember there was a, a cartoon I always remembered in the New Yorker of a kid. Uh, and you could tell that he was dreaming. He was imagining in his mind. You saw him behind a sleigh coming into a village. And, you know, he'd, he'd driven a team of huskies into this village. And the, the headline was getting the serum through. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I think most kids have you know, those kind of fantasies of heroism and greatness and all that stuff. And it just seemed to me it was one of the, one of the interesting things about being young. I think that uh, also made it appeal, gave the show a little bit more of a, of an appeal to teenage boys. Um, yeah. The, Majority of these types of shows are marketed to girls. Um, and while uh -huh. there's certainly, you know, something to look at for, for the female audience uh, with the male characters, mm -hmm. um, the way you write the character and, and what you have them do and, of course, how they act, that has a lot to do with them being relatable to the viewer. And um, that was yeah. one thing I noticed was that uh, this, this, this show appeared, appealed uh, – uh, 
as much to boys uh, as as it would to the female audience. Yeah, well, I I was hoping it would do that. You know, I just think you know whenever you draw on your own experience, you're you're on on solid ground. Yeah, so that leads me to ask: Did you watch the show after you ended up leaving? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because I, you know, I knew all the people, and and I wanted it to to do well, uh, but it it was sad. It was sad that it worked out that the way it did. Because it was one of those things that there was no reason, <laughs> there was no rationale behind it. It was just like a lot of things. In television. Yeah, I'm wondering if costs or uh, had anything to do with that, uh, with them letting, because they let go three people um, and turn things over to uh, to Ruben. I, I don't think it was costs. I think they really didn't. I mean, maybe that was part of it, but they really didn't like us. You know, I mean, me, Martin and Joe, they could, it was hard to get rid of me and, you know, because I had created the thing. But uh, I remember, you know, we'd have these meetings with them. They'd say, oh, you guys are too uptown. You're too intellectual. You you don't know what the real people think. Uh, you think Paul Klein knew what the hell the real people thought? <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Paul Klein, he, had, he came up with uh, the theory of... Uh, television audience behavior of what was called the least objectionable program in that the viewer's going to watch something that night. He'll probably watch the thing that's, that he least objects to. And uh, th- this was an, a, a printed theory that they went by at NBC. Um, uh, Klein had two stints at NBC and, and they, uh, everything I've read about him is that uh, he, he was very influential on uh, the way that they uh, programmed their, uh, their schedule. Yeah, it's what it's what killed us. Yeah, I uh, I still occasionally run into people who who watch the show. Uh, there was a lot of there were a lot of nice things about it, and the people connected with it. I mean, on our production, were always you know I have nothing but good memories for the people I worked with on that show. Yeah, we know what inspired other people. Uh, you were saying it inspired people. Uh, most famously, uh, the creator of Dawson's Creek in the '90s, uh, Kevin Williamson, yeah. directly says uh, he was mm-hmm. he was trying to do James at 15 for the '90s, and so yeah. you know, we got another uh, TV show that was about teenagers and uh, a sensitive portrayal um, of uh, you know yeah. re- trying an attempt at realism. Um, so it did yeah. have a, it did have some cultural impact. Yeah. Well, it was uh, good while it lasted. <laughs> you know the other the other the other show that I loved. Maybe it was a little. I think slightly after that. Mm-hmm. And one of the the writers who wrote one of our episodes, I think, was thirty something. I really loved that show. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I wonder what became of all those people. But it's it's really hard, you know, and I think one it, it's sort of like 
I feel like John Hamm will never get another part, you know, and, and it was sort of that, that happened to Lance at an early age. Every, the, the TV things he did after that, everybody said, oh, it's, he still looks 15 or mm-hmm. something, or he's James of 15, and John, John Hamm is always going to be Don Draper, no matter right. what he does. I, I was interested to see, you know, on the Mrs. America that April worked on and uh-huh. wrote for and was a story editor on for a while. I thought, gee, that husband of uh, <laughs> looks very familiar, Mrs. Yeah. America's husband. And I realized, oh, my God, that's uh, that's John Slattery. That's uh-huh. the guy who was Roger on uh, Mad Men. Uh, and Mad Men is my all-time favorite show. In fact, I have watched the entire series. I mean, the whole Mad Men from first to last episode seven or eight times. Oh, and, wow. uh, it, I, I was really upset. When, you know, it's no longer on NBC. They they dropped it and now you can you can get it on uh, on Amazon, mm-hmm. but you have to uh, after the first ten episodes you have to pay for it. So when I get around to it, I'm just going to buy the DVDs and have it to watch. Yeah, that's what's happened to to much of quality television now it has moved to uh, online streaming. And so, yeah. the, especially those those sort of niche shows uh, like Mrs. America, um, yeah, there would be a, a limited episode run. Um, just mm. I don't think you can get away with the quality uh, on broadcast television anymore. And uh, of course, there's an argument that if what broadcast even is anymore, almost everybody is hooked up to to a cord of some sort. Definitely the, the, the better writing and the better production values are often seen on these shows uh, that, uh, that are online. Of course, Mad Men was on cable. It did start on, uh, on cable TV, but uh, a lot of programming now is, uh, originates uh, on these uh, online streaming platforms. Right. Of, of course, uh, you know, later on, uh, you were involved in other, uh, other productions, and you, you had uh, most notably your book, Going All the Way, was made into a feature film. Going all the way was reflecting the mores of the summer of 1954. And uh, I think of it now as a historic movie, historic book. But I think it was, I love the movie. And I think, I think it was one of Ben Affleck's best things he ever did. Everybody in it, Rachel Rice, uh, Rose McGowan. But you know who loved it was Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert said that the movie of Going All the Way was more like his own coming of age than any movie he had ever seen. And Siskel said, well, he, Siskel said he liked American Graffiti better. Well, that has nothing to do with the issue. But anyway, I always appreciated Roger Ebert for that and really valued it. I do value it. 
Well, there you go. There's no accounting for taste. Yeah. You later turned your experience into a, a novel itself with uh, Selling Out. So that's going to be next on my list of things to read. I have not yet read that one. Well, I will say that all all my novels are on ebooks, and uh, so I hope uh, anybody who's interested who loved James at fifteen will look for my novels on ebook. Going all the way, starting over. That was a movie too. Although the movie had nothing to do with the novel. Uh, that was one of those other things. You know, I was once on a panel with John Updike, and it was after The Witches of East Week had come out. Mm -hmm. And he had the similar experience that I did with Going All the Way, that the movie had nothing to do with the book. And in both of our cases, as soon as they, whoever uh, produced the movie got the rights, they wouldn't speak to us. We had to buy a ticket to go to the movie. As Updike said, he said they did, they filmed some of the Witches of East Week 20 miles from where he lived. He said they never invited him to the set. He said, I would have liked to meet Cher. <laughs> you know, so um, anyway, that's another another story. Well, I appreciate you coming on today and talking to us about your experiences covering a, a, a great variety of time. I mean, I, I, you've worked on, on so many things. I, uh, there's a producer that uh, person I talked to online and he wanted to he wanted to, uh, to note that, wow, you're going to be talking to a real writer and not just the ones that write for TV. <laughs> so you, well, you've, you're in the class of those uh, real writers uh, that uh, are actually published outside of the entertainment industry. So, uh, you have a lot of content that people can can pick up, and uh, absolutely a, a link to uh, to your books is going to be in the notes uh, when this posts. And yes, and uh, and my website is easy to remember: danwakefield dot com. That's right. No, well, thanks. I enjoyed talking to you. I enjoyed talking to you, sir. You have a pleasant afternoon. Thank you for being on Forgotten TV. Thank you. And today on Forgotten TV, I have TV writer, producer, and novelist April Smith, who has uh, agreed to come on and talk to us about James at 15. And April, I, I very much appreciate you coming on, and welcome to Forgotten TV. Well, thank you. I'm glad someone is remembering. <laughs> uh, happy to be with you, Chris. Thanks. Thank you so much. Yeah, I found that uh, it's not remembered by everyone, but uh, those that, that do do have fond memories of the show. Uh, now that it's about 43 years old, you know, it, it, it received very limited reruns. It was uh, rerun on A&E Network um, the, the following year, I believe. And then it sort of dropped off the face of television. Um, so it hasn't been in the, the ongoing consciousness of, uh, of American television like a number of other TV shows. Uh, James at 15 just sort of, sort of fell off the map. Before we get to start talking about that, would you like to tell us uh, just a brief introduction as, as to, to who you are, your background, and how you got started in writing? Well, I am um, a multi, multi-frame person, I guess you'd say. I use different, different frames of writing. Uh, I'm a novelist. I've published seven novels, 
of suspense with Knopf and um, TV writer. Uh, James at 15 was my first script. Um, and that was 43 years ago, as you say. And since then, I've written for Lou Grant and I produced Cagney and Lacey. There's some other old shows for you, but they've hung around longer. Um, and then I wrote a bunch of TV movies, um, produced one of my books, Good Morning Killer, as a movie, and it is available um, online. It stars Catherine Bell. And that was a great experience being an executive producer. And since then, I've gone back to novels. Um, and then my most recent gig was consulting producer on the FX Hulu miniseries, um, Mrs. America, starring Kate Blanchett as Phyllis Schlafly. And in fact, the Emmys are coming up and we are nominated for 10. So keep your fingers crossed for that. That would be thrilling. Yeah, that's uh, that's something newly streaming on Hulu uh, just this year, I think. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, right. that's fantastic. Certainly a, a, a good body of television for the era that, that we consider here on Forgotten TV. Certainly remember several years watching Cagney and Lacey and uh, Lou Grant was a, a critically acclaimed show um, with some, mm -hmm. some great writing. So how did you get involved with James at 15 then and getting involved with television? Did you already know Dan Wakefield? Yes, I knew Dan Wakefield because um, he lived in Boston. I lived in Cambridge, and we were both part of the literary scene there. I went to Boston University undergraduate, and then I went to Stanford in their creative writing program. But then I came back to Cambridge, and I was writing a novel, which never got published, and working in advertising, which really helped me understand the way the world works. And Dan was kind of the center of a whole literary circle there. He had a fabulous brownstone on um, Beacon Hill. And anyone who passed through town would stop at Dan's. And, you know, those were the days of drinking and partying and all that kind of stuff, which he, of course, renounced famously. Um, but at the time, that was it, the center. And John Didion would come by and all those people. And Dan and I were really good friends. He was my mentor. He encouraged me to write seriously. We had many dinners with long conversations about um, writing in books and philosophy. And he still is one of my closest and dearest friends. And then he may have told you that he got a phone call out of nowhere from Hollywood um, saying, boy, I loved your book going all the way about adolescence. And um, we're thinking of doing a TV show about a young boy. Would you like to come to Hollywood and write? And it was out of nowhere, and Dan did it and cut to James at 15. So then Dan moved out of Boston and uh, went to Hollywood and lived in L.A. And I was still in Cambridge. But they shot the pilot for James at 16 in Boston. And I became the quote location manager, even though I had no idea what that meant. But I hung out with the crew and the production manager and showed them Boston because I'd gone to school there. I knew it well. Um, and prior to, the shoot, to that, to making the film, Dan had sold the rights to, uh, God, can you get this wrong? I think it's Doubleday for uh, young adult books and adaptations of his scripts for James. So I was really well acquainted with the show and 
the stories and what it was supposed to be. So I ended up having one of these peak experiences, taking the director and um, producers. They took me up in this helicopter and we did aerial shots of Boston for the credits, which was thrilling. And then one of my strongest memories of it is we were shooting on the Boston Common. And of course we had the actor, um, Lance Kerwin. No, I don't think he was there. I think it was a double actually. So the idea was that Lance and this girl were supposed to come out of the T station, the transit station and walk across the uh, common. And of course, trying to capture all the great architecture in Boston to make it real. Um, there was this beautiful old historical colonial church right there. So, you know, they had the cameras set up and they had people back. The crowds were being held back. And the, and James and his girlfriend walk up and out of the station and the camera pans up to this church. Well, the church had a clock. And since you had to do multiple takes, that clock kept going. It didn't stop for the camera. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> So now my job was um, stop the clock. So I just went into the church, found the priest, and told him what we were doing. And I said, can you you stop this historical clock that's been going, you know, since 1604? Oh, my. Um, And yeah, and we sat in his office, and he was bemused. And I said, I just made this up. And I said, we'll make a donation to the church. He said, okay. And I just made, I just said, we'll give you $50 to stop the clock. So he did. Um, wow. And the shot lives on. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, Boston featured, uh, uh, particularly in the second half of the of the, the pilot movie. Um, you had the, the transit station, um, the Boston mm-hmm. Public Library. You saw the, the Gren- uh, Granary Burying Ground, Fenway Park. And he was wandering around these areas. And uh, that was the first TV show set in Boston since 1974's Friends and Lovers, airing on CBS. Oh, wow. So Boston was uh-huh. quite proud of, of the, that they had a network show, you know, basically as an ad for, for uh, uh, tourism. Um, so that's exciting. That's, that's something that I don't think you received credit for. <laughs> no. On the credits there. So, so at some point then you moved out to, uh, to L.A., to work on the show. Right, right. And so, uh, I mean, was that early on that they uh, had you involved in making the novelizations of the, the premiere movie and the uh, the first episode? Well, I believe the novelizations came first. I mean, I know they did. I wrote them in Cambridge. Ah, okay. um, and what happened was um, Dan was in a meeting with the head of TV in um, at Fox. And James was going, James was in production, and I really had nothing to do with it at the time. Um, and he pitched this idea, or actually the head of Fox Television pitched this idea to Dan that they were wanted to develop a book about a boy who's uh, orphaned. Uh, his parents are killed in a horrible accident, and he sails around the world alone in a sailboat. So... Um, Dan was listening to this and he knew that the first short story that I published out of the Stanford creative writing program was published in the Atlantic monthly, also a Boston publication. Um, and he said, well, I know a writer who's perfect for that. This is Dan just plucking this out of the air. And he said, um, you know, April Smith wrote a, a short story in the Atlantic about 
a family who is um, kind of confronting each other in a sailboat. So this executive thought, wow, sailboat, sailboat. So he said, you know, I'd like to talk to her. So Dan calls me and he says, come out to L.A. and meet this guy and see what happens. And so I did. And I stayed at the Chateau Marmont. And I uh, got picked up. And Dan, you have to understand, was like king of the mountain at the time um, because James was being shot on the Fox lot. And, you know, it was it was a big deal. So he had some power there. And um, it was all in the family. I just uh, met with this executive at Fox, and Dan was in the room. Um, and we chatted. And, uh, and this guy said to me, um, well, have you ever written a script before? I said, no. Uh, but I've written the two James books, so I do know the characters. And he said, well, do you think you could? I said, yes. And he said, okay. And Dan stood up and said, let's go. And that was it. We made a deal for me to um, write a script, not for James at 16, but for this pilot. And I ended up staying at the Marmont, you know, for, I don't know, a month or something. And then I was working on the script. And then once I kind of was established there, um, they gave me an office on the Fox lot. And then I, I was away from Cambridge for months because uh, I got a, an apartment at, um, in the marina at Oakwood Garden Apartments, you know, those transient apartments. So I'm just sort of flowing with it, you know. Um, and I was out here, it must have been three or four months before I went back to Cambridge and packed everything up. And, and then I moved back out here uh, at, to, to the uh, transient transitional apartment but I was still on the Fox lot and that was huge I mean it was just a miracle a privilege a, an amazing opportunity because in those days things were very loose and uh, they gave me a car I had a Pinto you could fill up gas at the studio I mean it was pretty magical and because I was on the Fox lot that's how I met my husband um, because there was a composer who worked on James named Miles Goodman, who was partners with my future husband, Douglas Brayfield, um, and they were writing songs together, and to make a long story short, that's how I got introduced to Doug. <clears throat> and on our first date, we fell in love, and we've been married ever since, 40 years. Wow, so that's quite a story. That, that, so that would be... <laughs> In the early, back in the early days when uh, Uncle Dan was in the good graces of 20th Century Fox and, well, of NBC, yeah. uh, with, during the, the first half of the, uh, uh, the, of the one season show. Um, so, and we know your episode, Hunter Country, didn't air until the final five episodes. Oh. Uh, well, after, after the, the show had been uh, announced as, as, as being canceled. Uh, officially, I think the first week of May was, uh, so you were involved in writing that, uh, far earlier in the year, it sounds than, than when it actually aired. I think that's true. Yeah. I think by then I had gone on to, um, I wrote a spec script for Knox Landing before it was picked up uh, and that never aired, but it was one of those developmental scripts. So being on the lot, you know, was just huge. I mean, Dan just opened all those doors for me and I mean, that you couldn't have, it, it was a fantasy. I mean, we literally went from 
this executive saying, um, okay, you got the job, you're going to write. And it was a two-hour, well, it was a one-hour pilot, and then they expanded it to two hours, so I was busy. But we went directly from the Fox lot to Dan's apartment. I mean, the house he was renting in West Hollywood, and his agent came over to the house, and then I had an agent. And we had these big, giant, you know, fishbowl glasses of wine, (laughs) And um, there I was in L.A. Yeah. So, I mean, that led then obviously to a lot of work with uh, Cagney and Lacey was a Fox production. Right. Um, you wrote an episode of Family, mm-hmm. which was also produced by Fox. So uh, your your association with the studio there led to led to other work for you. Right. So were you were you on the set at all for the filming when they when they filmed yours? No, I wasn't. Not at all. Not at oh, all. OK. They ended up casting some people, uh, obviously Deborah Winger, yeah. uh, most notably. <laughs> I know. Uh, at a, as an early role. I mean, she had been on Wonder Woman um, and a few things, but uh, this was absolutely before her, you know, dis, you know, quote unquote discovery mm-hmm. from, you know, by the nation at large. I think uh, she came to people's attention in uh, An Officer and a Gentleman. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, this was in when she was doing her earning her TV roles as a, a you know, TV guest actor, mm-hmm. and, and she did well. And, and I saw Eric Stoltz pop on. It was his very first uh, walk-on appearance. Uh, I think he had one line. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> bo- boy in sub shop, Eric Stoltz, and there he was. With the resolution that you see online with the, the home recordings that we have, yeah. it, you really have to pay attention to, to notice. But I was like, well, that is him. Mm-hmm. So uh, I did notice James at 15 really had – a number of, of actors that went on to uh, uh, other things and, and, you know, had a great list of guest stars. Um, was there a, a particular inspiration for this episode or, I, I mean, a message that you had? I know the, the student council president or student body president is, is sort of a popular trope in, in fiction, uh, on, on television particularly with, uh, with this age group of characters. I didn't know if uh, if you had uh, any any particular inspiration for uh, the type of message that you were you were sending there. Well, I think I was attracted to the subject, as I recall, because I had this um, sort of failed attempt to run for student body president in junior high school. It was it was just a fiasco, um, but I did have that experience. Uh, it was one of these things that was just wide open. I mean, there wasn't a lot of pressure or status or anything um, attached to it. It was just, well, if you want to, here, do it. Uh, And there was like zero school spirit. This was in the Bronx. So, you know, nobody cared. But yes, we did have elections and I did have to give a speech. And I I actually, um, I think I quoted some Greek philosopher opening line. And I think that's why there's in the speech that uh, uh, one of the characters in this episode gives, I think it's James at the end, where he says, I stand before you, and then he throws that away and he gets real. And that might have actually come from this crazy Roman uh, inspiration that I had. It's a good thing he threw that away because it didn't work. <laughs> um, so I, I think I had that experience that I kind of wanted to process. But clearly, you know, the... The, the networks had such control, um, even on Lou Grant. The, there were rules and things you couldn't say. 
And when I looked at the episode again, it was like this little morality play. Um, you know, you must be true to your friends. Your friends come first. Um, and that, as you say, is a trope that I think television in those days just reinforced this kind of, um, uh, what, conventional attitudes um, toward behavior and democracy and how democracy is supposed to work. Uh, and of course, right. you know, the, the girl who runs against him, she was the uh, sort of young women's lib um, voice, which I, I had a lot of passion for. And so did she. She was really good, really good. Um, and mm-hmm. Lance was just a wonderful actor, too. When you think about how young he was, he really had range and sensitivity. So the whole, when I looked at it again, um, I could really see the values uh, were important. The values of honesty, integrity, uh, being yourself. Um, and, and actually, yes, you'd be punished if you weren't, you know? So there was a lot of, um, energy that came to that script from those points of view. And then of course, making it, attempting to make it, um, in the language of kids and easygoing and not hitting it too hard. But when you look at the structure of it, it was, there was a big hammer out there that said, um, this must resolve in a, in a moral way. And it was very poignant to watch it now, given the shreds of the remaining sense of, of uh, form and honor and duty that's left in politics. James was quite, a, quite, quite an example. <laughs> shades of the Hayes Code. Yes, yes. From Hollywood. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. very, very much so. Yes. Uh, evildoers must be punished. You know, adulterers will see their their <laughs> see their day, and um, uh, you know, they, I'm sure they had a list of the things you couldn't say on television. And but at the time, you know, it was so corporate. It was just such mm-hmm. a hierarchy. Of course, male driven. I might say that that as well. Yeah, you know, and just these old fashioned American values that could not be violated because you know you were on national television. And the FCC was in charge, and you couldn't you couldn't say words that they didn't approve. Yeah, and you do see uh, some reflections in uh, U.S. politics uh, from the the way it was presented in your episode. Um, you know, Susan Myers as Marlene was the the studious women's lib. Not only that, but but she was very you know academic, and uh, she had the lang- the, the the vocabulary mm-hmm. of of somebody you know that was a postgraduate. And she was supposed to be a, a sophomore in high school. And mm-hmm. you saw that the reaction to her bringing up the real issues was uh, the Deborah Winger character basically demonizing her as being the kooky uh, the intellectual, you know, the, the well, intellectual. She accused her of being an intellectual. <laughs> exactly. And so you, you saw this this yeah. othering of, of uh, those who would 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 think of things on an intellectual level and uh you know do you want somebody that's uh that's going to give us free pizza and be great at sports go, go for james you know so mm-hmm. that's that's you know readily visible uh as as you watch the episode today mhm yes still relevant yep also i i sent you that link about how that uh the idea of the the trope of running for for student president um, has has mm-hmm. led to that, and you see that across 
numerous TV shows. Uh, the absurdly powerful student council that would have the power to enforce school policies and uh, change cafeteria food and all those types of things that would take you know the, the school district decisions. That gave us one of the early examples of that, where, where they were expecting that uh, the, the student president was going to be able to, to make the administration stop searching lockers for contraband, for example. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I did love that scene. That guy was great. I did like how that you you, uh, you used a, a lot of the characters. I don't. I'm. I don't. Did the show have a writer's bible? I, I've never found one. Um, you you had the familiar characters used. I mean, the Dean Llewellyn character played by Marvin Katzoff. Mm-hmm. Um, he showed up in about a dozen episodes, and he was great. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know if they had. Uh, a writer's guide for, to go over for these are the, the recurring characters you can use and so forth. Not that I remember. I, I, I know what you mean. And I didn't see anything like that. I think that sort of came into vogue later in my career. Um, it was certainly part of pitching something, you know, um, if you were trying to sell a show, you really had to have developed characters. So that, you know, morphed into a writer's guide when you would join a staff. But at that point, it was kind of freeform, I think. Well, I mean, you know, the characters were established, but you knew who they were, and you just wrote to, to what was already uh, dramatized. Did you have any thoughts on, uh, or, or did you watch, the, were you a watcher of the show in the later part of the season? No, I'm sure I was watching it, but I don't really have a clear memory of that. It was a while ago, wasn't it? Y- yeah, it was a while ago. <laughs> yeah. I felt that it, the show... I thought that that Ronald Rubin understood the characters and Mm -hmm. he wrote some of the best episodes. I mean, the Mm -hmm. apple tree, the singing and the gold Mm -hmm. um, where James uh, loses his best friend. Uh, That was, uh, you know, one of the the most critically acclaimed episodes of the series. And and he was the writer of that one Um, that that one aired early on. And so he clearly understood the characters, um, and I thought the the show was was produced well. I didn't think there was any loss in quality uh, when when Dan and mm-hmm. the uh, other uh, the other producers left. It it was just the 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 controversy over the direction of exactly how things would would play out. But I didn't think the the, the writing suffered or or the the production overall suffered mm-hmm. uh, as a as a result of uh, the show being turned over to to different people. No, I agree with you about that. I mean, Ron, is, he's very talented and um, knew what he was doing, and that was a smooth transition. You know, um, the battles at the beginning was a great team that Dan had, and so they did their job. You know, they fought the initial battles, got it on the air, and that was the irony is once you got on the air, you were there forever. <laughs> Um, you know, these shows ran for years. Yeah, unfortunately, the ratings uh, just weren't there on Thursday night for for James at fifteen. Um, with the decision that they made to what they did was with the scheduling, the the stunting schedule, where they would do three or four episodes and then let's have a special. And oh yeah, you know, when James at fifteen returns next week, he joins a cult. You know, so there was a sort of a managed dissatisfaction of the viewers mm-hmm. coming back to Thursday night and James wasn't there. Instead, this show was here, but, uh, you know, come back in two weeks and this is what happens. So mm-hmm. that was their strategy evidently at the time, but, uh, that seemed to have backfired. I was, 
I was impressed that they left it on Thursday night, though, yeah. Uh, yeah. for the entire run. Uh, so many of the, the shows I look at, they hopped around the schedule, and that's never good. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when a show is on Monday, then it's on Sunday night, then it's on a different time. There's no way in the pre-VCR era True. that uh, people could keep up with that. True. And now we understand, cut to streaming, how important continuity and uh, loyalty and... Um, hypnotic effects and right. sustaining tension and so forth is. I mean, people can't wait three seconds for the next episode. So yeah, that's a whole different sort of brain experiment um, <laughs> that they were doing then and it didn't work. We did have the technology, of course. Yeah, it, it, it's a story in, what, 12 or 13 chapters is what you have to put together now. And uh, people uh, consume content completely differently than than they did in that era mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of course you worked on those other great shows lou grant cagney and lacy um and uh you know that leads to your your current project with uh with mrs america did you want to tell us what uh, a little bit about what that's about and um sure. what that story is well mrs america is now currently streaming and it will be forever on um fx hulu uh, it stars the great Kate Blanchett, who plays Phyllis Schlafly. And for those of us who don't remember her um, or are too young, she was the great right-wing um, organizer who basically created the moral majority. She was a very, um, a very ambitious politician, but in those days, it was just sort of unthought, unthinkable for a woman to. Uh, really run in the normal course of things for uh, for Senate. She did run um, unsuccessfully, so she was the one who almost single-handedly defeated the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, mm-hmm. which was making its way through Congress to become a uh, an amendment to the Constitution that guaranteed that there would be no discrimination on any level. Uh, in terms of gender or sex or that kind of identification at all. And she marshaled um, all these conservative groups. She she was very smart and knew that she needed an alliance. And so it became a battle between, she was the leader on that side, and then we had the New York feminists, um, of whom that character on James was a precursor, precursor. Uh, you know, Gloria Steinem and um, Bella Abzug, Shirley Chisholm, who are all characters in the miniseries, uh, marshalling, fighting against each other for for um, hearts and minds. And in the end, Phyllis won, and the ERA is still not ratified. Mm-hmm. But it's a very um, smart, beautifully produced, slyly uh, amusing um piece of work. There are nine episodes. I'm really proud to have been part of it. Uh, We did extensive research on all these famous women, and it was a revelation to me just to, you know, learn about their backgrounds. Um, The episode written about Shirley Chisholm by a writer named Tanya Barfield uh, is up for an Emmy. Uh, Kate is up for an Emmy. The show's up for multiple Emmys. Uh, Many of the actresses are. So, um, Fingers crossed that it gets the recognition it deserves. It was, it was a very radical idea to make, quote, the enemy, 
the star of the show. And the challenge for us as writers was to understand Phyllis. Um, we're writing it really from her point of view and doing a very deep dive into her psychology, her family, her need to control, her sadism. Um, the effect she had on her children was totally, um, total control and obedience. Um, so it was really a challenge to be, to be uh, empathetic to her and try to be true to what motivated her. And so I think it's a powerful piece of work. Yeah, and you've got uh, Elizabeth Banks on there, Tracy Ullman, um, mm-hmm. Jean Triplehorn. Right. Uh, so there's some really great names uh, showing up in that series. And this was uh, created by uh, Davi Waller, mm-hmm. um, who was uh, a producer on Mad Men and also on Halt and Catch Fire, two excellent programs. Right. Um, if... Uh, Viewers haven't uh, haven't discovered either one of those, uh, especially Halt and Catch Fire, because that's more of the era that we consider here on this podcast. Um, and it sort of ties in with uh, I recently did a series on Whiz Kids, oh. which which definitely calls back to that era of, of you know, the war games, early 80s, um, the dawn of the home computer era. And uh, so I greatly enjoyed Halt and Catch Fire. So I'm going to be checking out Mrs. America on Hulu. Excellent. Thank you. Enjoy it. Let me know what you think. And of course, we'll have a link to to the show and and to uh, your your books. You've got a series of books. It's available, of course, on uh, Amazon or wherever books are sold. Yes, your independent book bookseller. That's right. Um, I have I have a mystery series um, that features Special Agent Anna Gray, who is an FBI agent in L.A. and she is biracial. Um, and doesn't know she is. The first book is called North of Montana, Montana Avenue being a street in Santa Monica. And uh, the first book is a sort of self-discovery, a mystery that she follows about who she really is while, of course, working a case. Um, And there are four Anna Gray books. And then I wrote a standalone called Be the One, which is about the only female baseball scout in the major leagues. It's fiction, obviously. (laughs) Um, and for that, I, um, I got to basically live with the Dodger organization for about a year. It was fantastic. As you can see, I sort of have to live these, these uh, experiences and locales in order to write about them. Um, and then I did um, a couple of other standalones. I switched to historical fiction okay. because I was very taken with the story of the Gold Star Mother's pilgrimages in the 1930s. Uh, where the U.S. government paid for almost 7,000 women who had lost their husbands and sons in World War I um, and were buried in the American cemeteries overseas to make the journey. These women from all over the country who had never left their hometowns were shepherded by the U.S. government on first-class ocean liners and first-class tours of Paris, and then they drove out to the country and visited the graves in those huge American cemeteries, you know, with 14,000 uh, graves. Um, so that was so powerful, I just had to write that. It's called A Star for Mrs. Blake. And then my most recent book is called Home Sweet Home. And it is also based on a true story of a family in the 50s who left New York to go to the West for a better life for their children. And because they were strangers and, quote, you know, New York intellectuals, they were branded as communists 
which they were not. But because of that, um, that pursuit and being, you know, kind of, they became the devil in this town to people. And it resulted um, years later in a triple murder uh, that was a direct result of that uh, persecution that they suffered. So, as you can see, I'm um, interested in real-life events and high-level conflicts. Um, and I, my, my technique really is total immersion, uh, physically going to the places, breathing the air. I went to South Dakota where I fictionally set the story, didn't take place there. Um, you know, and so it's, um, it's kind of a, a lifestyle. Uh, it's not what you think of. Well, some people think of writers, you know, smoking the pipe and in their attic. <laughs> I think you have to get out there and experience what your characters experience. So there's a, a lot to, a lot of content provided by you over the over the years that uh, that we've enjoyed. So I wanted to thank you for for that. I know my my mother in particular uh, greatly enjoyed Cagney and Lacey, and so our family watched that for years. And I mean, I know you weren't involved for uh, all of the seasons that it was uh, that it was on, but oh, that's great. And so it, it it's it's great to go back and watch uh, some of this uh, some of this content from from that era and just see how. The basic things that that people took issue with, that uh, is just amazing mm-hmm, today. Mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. how that uh, even the most um, conservative person really doesn't think that hardly. You know that hard about a female police officer or female detective. Um, that's just that's just accepted. Um, but that wasn't always the case, and and mm-hmm. that's obviously a theme that you bring out again and again in in your fiction and uh, in in your writing. Mm-hmm. True. Well, it's my experience, so right. Yeah. Um, it's it's right there for me, and hopefully for the reader. Absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate you coming on. I thank you so much for for being a part of uh, my little project, um, remembering uh, an over forty year old television series, um, and um, that uh, your your comments and experiences uh, round out the the picture a little bit for uh, what went on behind the scenes. And I, I really thank you for, for coming on to forgotten TV and, and telling us about this. Well, it was my pleasure, Chris. And I'm, I'm thankful to you for, you know, keeping the flame alive and providing continuity, which is sorely lacking these days of, you know, instantaneous viewing uh, and memory is about, you know, the 24 hour news cycle. So you're doing us a cultural favor here and something very important. So um, carry on and thank you for your diligence and care. After James at 15, Lance Kerwin's ability to portray sensitive, angst-ridden, yet likable characters made him in demand for several years as a TV movie regular. He notably appeared in the TV horror miniseries Salem's Lot in 1979 playing young horror fan Mark Petrie, assisting David Soule's Ben Mears in his efforts to save a New England town of its vampiric presence. The miniseries is still remembered for the frightening scenes they got away with on television, and it was a popular home video rental for decades. Lance appeared in several topical TV movies, such as The Boy Who Drank Too Much, Children of Divorce, and A Killer in the Family as well as a number of one-off TV guest star appearances. In 1985, he had a brief role on the theatrical film Enemy Mine, 
but his acting career started to noticeably fade as it became increasingly difficult to conceal his drug use. His final acting credit was in 1995's Outbreak. Lance has not kept it a secret that, like many former child actors, he has struggled in his life with addiction and was in and out of various treatment programs and moved to the Hawaiian Islands as an attempt to escape the Hollywood lifestyle. But he says he was only able to shake off his addictions by wholeheartedly turning his life over to Jesus Christ. Since the mid-90s, he has been involved with U-Turn for Christ, a faith-based residential drug and alcohol ministry. And in 2006, he started a new U-Turn ministry in Hawaii. Now 59, he keeps very busy with his family and helping people recover from addiction and is right where he wants to be. My heart's desire is fulfilled as I have witnessed the Lord transform former addicts into missionaries, pastors, and evangelists who share the hope they now have in Christ. Immediately following James at 15, David Hubbard starred in the very short-lived drama Harrison Company and voiced the character of Moleculad, Space Stars, member of Teen Force on Hanna-Barbera's Saturday morning cartoon Space Stars. He appeared in numerous one-off guest roles throughout the 80s, but later made it into directing under the name David Rayner with 1999's Trippin'. If every fantasy is real, tell him I'm busy getting busy. He knows what I mean. You must be trippin'. The 2000 comedy Whatever It Takes, two Martin Lawrence comedy specials, and the 2007 film Spiritual Warriors. Now 59, David is well does public speaking, and is involved with Arianna Huffington's startup, Thrive Global. Susan Myers was in a handful of TV appearances as well as the movie Revenge of the Nerds. The last thing I could confirm she was in was the 1982 TV movie Beyond Reason. Oddly, I can find no information at all on Susan, apart from her movie and TV roles and her life outside her acting career remains a total mystery. Lyndon Childs, who had an early career as a contract actor for Universal, following James, had recurring roles on Barnaby Jones, Quincy M.E., Santa Barbara, and worked regularly throughout his life with a total of 149 acting credits. In 2013, the 80-year-old actor who had survived cancer was working on the roof of his home when he fell from it and was killed. Lynn Carlin, after the series, had about 20 additional TV roles on The Incredible Hulk, Lou Grant, Darkroom, and Trapper John M.D., as well as the voice of Nell, the starship on Battle Beyond the Stars. Now 82, she has retired from acting and lives out of the public eye. Kim Richards, following James, starred in Return from Witch Mountain, then was cast in the McLean-Stevenson sitcom Hello Larry, which lasted two seasons. Then she appeared in about a dozen TV and film roles over the next 30 years, 
before appearing in a cameo role in the 2009 film Race to Witch Mountain. She, along with her sister Kyle, were main cast members of the reality series The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Now 56, she just appeared, along with Witch Mountain co-star Ike Eisenman, on a Wizard World virtual convention, available to watch on Twitch or YouTube. After 1978, Deirdre Berthrong had no credited acting roles. She did produce a 1993 TV movie called Born Too Soon with Michael Moriarty and Pamela Reed. Despite a convincing online obituary, I am happy to report she is 68 and enjoying life with her husband, actor Dennis Redfield, to whom she was married in 1979. By May of 1978, the series started to be distributed internationally, airing in Canada and Australia, but I don't find evidence of more extensive distribution. In May of 1985, Dan Wakefield released the book Selling Out, featuring a fictionalized story inspired by his Hollywood experiences writing for a television series. My own experiences were the inspiration for the book, but I went out of my way to make sure the characters did not represent any particular individuals. I've been asked if I did any research. My answer is that my life was the research. Perhaps not coincidentally, that same summer, the pilot movie again entered the TV schedule as part of a movie syndication package, and it was widely run on many local stations across the country. Starting in October, the series was rerun on A&E Network, where it ran regularly for three years. Then the series went dark and was not aired again. As mentioned, to date, James at 15 has never enjoyed any home video release. Kevin Williamson, the creator of Dawson's Creek, cited this show as a major influence on him and named it as an inspiration for his show. Dawson's Creek came out of my desire to do James at 15 for the 90s. It was very provocative and way ahead of its time. Many viewers placed James at 15 on a short list of realistic teen dramas that featured appropriate age actors instead of adults portraying teens, which is what is done most of the time. In the mid-90s series, My So-Called Life, main character Angela, played by Claire Danes, has inner monologues shared with the viewer, similar to the way viewers were privy to James's daydreams. In the 1999 series Freaks and Geeks, a trio of social misfits navigate their freshman year in high school, while the main character's older sister finds her way with a group of high school burnouts. The series was set in the 1980s, featured an extremely talented cast, most of which went on to great success in the industry, and like James, was a critically acclaimed show that ran only one season. Unlike the vast majority of teenage dramas in recent decades that are almost exclusively written for and marketed to teen girls, the realism presented by James at 15, as well as the male-oriented fantasies that he held, appealed to teenage boys as well. The topics and plots presented in episodes seemed authentic and often 
without pat endings or full resolutions, just like life. For a brief time in the 1977 TV season, Lance Kerwin's James Hunter helped teens try to answer age-old questions about life and love. Questions that have changed little in the last 40-plus years. Is it a feeling in the heart or something you can't name? Few, if any, have the answers at 15. Consider yourself fortunate if you're one of the ones that eventually find the answers. Next time on Forgotten TV. He was the world's first truly automatic man. Desi Arnaz Jr. Chuck Wagner. Auto Man. That's next time on Forgotten TV. Just a word before we get into the credits segment. A message on behalf of Lee Montgomery and wife Laurie Shelley. Recall, Lee sang the original James at 15 theme song, and you and I grew up listening to his voice. It's all yours, and it's all mine. Bring your best self right here, you got the time with Budweiser Light. Bring out your best Budweiser Light. To brew Budweiser Light, it took time. Life was simple in the heartland With family people in the heartland We're working hard in the heartland Right in your backyard Miller Beer, Budweiser, Coors, Chevrolet, McDonald's, United Airlines Lee and wife Laurie, a talented singer herself, have been together since 1986 In 2007, Lee had a major stroke leaving him with frontal lobe damage, an area of the brain responsible for emotional expression, problem-solving, memory, language, and judgment. Even though he was coherent enough to have a conversation with me and help with background information he recalled, his singing career, understandably, has ended. Lori has been caring for Lee ever since. But five years ago, Lee's condition worsened, and he has required even more care. But in the past 11 months, Lori has also had major health issues, requiring two surgeries, and their savings are now depleted. You can help. A link to their GoFundMe is in the show notes. Please consider helping in any way. Thank you. Want more Forgotten TV? Become a patron on Patreon or donate via PayPal and gain access to the Forgotten TV supplemental podcast feed. Additional podcasts that go beyond the material presented in the show. Full-length interviews before show release. Plus sneak previews of podcasts before they are openly posted. And additional goodies as they come along. What will I discuss this time? How about more info on Jiggle Television and sex on TV in the 70s? More on the birth of the video industry in 1977? And more about those film rental services? 
For as little as a dollar a month, you can support Forgotten TV and hear these great additional podcasts. The link to join us over on Patreon is in the show notes. Your funds make a difference and help pay for accounts and services needed to pay for hosting, license music, buy DVDs, and conduct research. All the ways you can support Forgotten TV are here in the show notes. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton and Doc Pinko with producers Beatrice McWilliams, Julio Coppa, Rich Kunkel, Mark Hadley, and Ron. Also, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by NBC, 20th Century Fox, 20th Television, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show, film, or streaming service mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, I earn from qualifying purchases made. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only and are not intended to infringe. This podcast is copyright 2020 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, and website articles. All reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented. However, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to especially thank Dan Wakefield, April Smith, Lance Kerwin, Lee Montgomery, Randy Richards, Marvin Katzoff, Kevin Van Weeringen, and Ralph Sineski for their contributions. With additional research by Casey Chambers and Ian Dickerson. I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making a lot of that audio possible. Apotheon SAK, Ion TV, Robert C. 2009, Berlin, Rhino, That Mimosa Grove, Dave in Progress 3, Sean MC, BGs, Andy Gibb, Topic, 60s, 70s Vintage Rock, Help for the Orphans, Billy Joel, England Dan and John Ford Coley, Topic, Sin Rob 1, Brian Durham, TV Rewind, Cheeseball999, Movie Clips, Merlogi, Kansas, Sticks, Morrison AV, Gordon Lightfoot, Andrew Mamas, Charlie's Angels, The New Format, Gilmore Box, RM, Linda Blair Fan, TV Time Capsule, High Karate 4, The Museum of Classic Chicago Television, Chuck D's all-new classic TV clubhouse. Keith Yearman, Television Detroit. Your Lorenzana, I love TV intros. Paul S, D-Day 9876. Stephen Brandt, Canuck 21. As well as the following channels that have James at 15 episodes and clips. 
Petri Adrian, Classic Television Fan, Ronnie Bear, James at HD, Laura Loves Almanzo, Melissa Sue Anderson Fan, Vic Ben 1216, Chuck Collins, Freddie Duke, as well as Georgia Caitlin 2605, Damon Julian 1827, and Manuel Emily 1455 on Daily Motion. Sources of quotes and background information were obtained from the following websites and vintage magazine issues. Cold Bananas Movie and TV Reviews, This Was Television, Center for Media Literacy, Real Chicago, The College Crowd Digs Me, Calvary Chapel Magazine, Bionic Disco, The Paley Center for Media, Kenneth and the 212, People Magazine, Newsweek, TV Week, and numerous vintage newspaper articles from newspapers.com, as well as the books, Up the Tube, Primetime TV in the Silverman Years by Sally Bedell, Wallowing in Sex, The New Sexual Culture of 1970s American Television by Alana Levine. You can't air that. Four Cases of Controversy and Censorship in American Television by David S. Silverman. NBC, America's Network by Michelle Helms. Music stingers heard are used under license from Epidemic Sound. Thank you for listening. I'm Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. was the world's first truly automatic man, Desi Arnaz Jr. and Chuck Wagner in Auto Man. That's next time on Forgotten TV. Uh, try that again. He was the world's first truly automatic man. Desi Arnaz Jr., Chuck Connors, Auto Man, Chuck Wagner, God damn it! <laughs>